your intellect, your ego, and your body are giving you two different messages, which is called a double message, which leads to confusion. But since your body does not know how to tell a lie or does not have ulterior motives other than keeping you alive, it is wise to remember that your body is a much better sounding board than your ego. (laughs) I can assure you that. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's episode is a solo episode with Paul talking about how to make optimal decisions in your life and the importance of the power of choice. Hi, everybody. Do you guys want to know one of my secret weapons that helps me avoid being sick or feeling run down? It's Organifi Immunity. Organifi Immunity is a super high-quality, certified organic drink mix that provides daily immune support and supports overall immunity. Organifi Immunity contains whole food vitamins C and D, whole food zinc, mushroom beta-glycans, and provides only natural sweetness. Not only will you support your immune system, but you'll also get on-the-go superfoods in a delicious orange blend that is great for you and your kids and everyone will love it. My family and I love it and it's easy as tearing off the top of the package and mixing it with high-quality drinking water and you can rest a little easier knowing that you're enhancing your immune system, which is probably a good idea now that so many people are spending so much time indoors, breathing indoor air, and lacking sun exposure. Why not enjoy a little immune insurance while getting certified organic nutrients, superfoods, and great taste that's quick easy, and effective. To get your Organifi immunity and shop their amazing product line with your Living 4D discount, go to organifi.com and save 20% on any and all of their products using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K20. That's check 20 during checkout. Enjoy Organifi. You know, turmeric's really, really hot now. There's a lot of scientific research on it, but they're not all created the same. So I brought Autumn Smith on to tell you about Paleo Valley's turmeric complex so you know exactly what the benefits are and why you, like me, should get your turmeric complex from Paleo Valley. Autumn, tell us about your turmeric complex. At Paleo Valley, we are big believers in food as medicine. And so turmeric, of course, it has beat drugs out. We know it's anti-inflammatory. We know it has brain benefits. We know it has joint benefits. But what most people don't know is that a lot of turmeric supplements only contain one isolated compound of turmeric called curcumin. And so what we did instead was create a complex. We added organic turmeric and then ginger and rosemary and clove, which were some of the most DNA protective spices studied. And we created a complex. We added organic coconut powder and pepper for absorption. And so We've created a really high quality, highly bioavailable turmeric complex that will hopefully help you to feel your best. And all you have to do to check it out is go to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15, that's lowercase C-H-E-K-15, to save 15%. Hi, everybody. You know, I love Bioptimizer's products. And one of the products that I use every single day is Leaky Gut Guardian which is designed to repair leaky gut syndrome, which almost everybody has today. And it's the basis of what we now call metabolic syndrome. 
And what most people don't realize is if you can't digest the food that you're eating and your small intestine is leaking, then undigested food particles get into your bloodstream. They go right through the portal vein to the liver and the liver has no mechanism for breaking large food molecules down. So your immune system comes after it and attacks it. I brought Wade Lightheart here, co-founder of Bioptimizers, because I really wanted to know how does Leaky Gut Guardian actually work to close the gut up and seal it? Wade, how does it do it? There's three areas that it deals with. Number one, it provides immunoglobulins made from eggs, the probiotic strains that are shown to repair the mucoid lining, as well as the prebiotics that allow them to take hold and operate inside your digestive canal. We combined all those three in a very tasty formula so that you can take it every day on an empty stomach, and it's been proven to work. Wade, I love that. I know it works because I use it, and everybody I've ever given it to is amazed by it. What's the discount for Living 4D listeners, and where can they get it? Well, if they go to www.leakygutguardian.com slash living4d and put in living4d uh, at any point, they will receive a 10% discount on all their products with our 100% money back guarantee. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today is part two of our Thrive series, Making the Optimal Decision Every Time. Our topic of discussion today is arguably one of the most important topics in all of our lives, And that is the power of choice to either enhance your life and the lives of others or to create challenges and pain in your life and the lives of others. In all honesty, I've seen many people end up dead because of making poor choices. And some of them, unfortunately, were in my own family. There have been many choices I've made in my life that were good ones that I was very grateful for. And I'm going to share a few of the choices just off the top of my head that that are worth celebrating, and I'm also going to share some of the challenging experiences that I've had to help you learn more about choice. Some of the choices I made that I was really happy I made was leaving home when I was 16, leaving the military when I was 25, getting a divorce from my first wife when I realized that we needed different things in a partner than we could provide for each other, and realizing that we were not modeling to our son what a healthy marriage looks like and knowing the impact that could have on him, yet it seemed like no matter how hard we tried, we just could not find harmony together. We just simply needed different things. The next good decision I made was traveling the world to study with the best experts I could find in all relevant areas of health, rehabilitation, and related fields of study, whether that be shamanism or psychology or depth psychology, it paid off. I uh, gained a lot of very concentrated knowledge from very, very wise people that would have took me 200 years in an academic institution to gain if it would even be possible. Next was starting the Czech Institute in 1995, which I was really aware that uh, I felt at that time that I could really offer something to the health and exercise industries, and it was actually Charles Polican who encouraged me to start the Institute. Next was getting married to Penny, which was really a very special experience and still is 24 years later. I love her with all my being, and uh, you'll learn more about my ride that continues with Penny, my, my love ride. I've also had to make some hard choices over the years with regard to firing staff members that 
put me in a sort of a tough position because they were friends and people that I really enjoyed on a personal level, but were not living in alignment with the mission, vision, and values of the Czech Institute, and were often creating disharmony with the rest of our staff. So I put off as long as I could, but what I learned the hard way is that keeping people on your staff that are not congruent with the mission, vision, and values of the business or the tribe or the institute actually can not only cost you a lot of money, but it can really stop everybody else from doing their job. And ultimately, the improvements in the institute were so significant, I ultimately had to let go of about 10 such people. And now the institute runs amazingly well, comparatively. So uh, sometimes good choices are hard choices. I also did a year-long internship with a doctor that was skilled in the use of plant medicines when, uh, well, let's see, quite a long time ago, 2006. And then I continued doing my own research and work with plant medicines and became licensed pretty much that year as a medicine man and spirit guide and began using plant medicines via my license to help people heal from a variety of different types of trauma and do vision quests to figure out why they were here and related topics. But the work I did with the doctor and my own research and then working with others with plant medicines has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And I can honestly say that working with plant medicines has probably taught me far more than all the books I've read and all the teachers I've studied over the years. I'm not encouraging you to jump out there and put a bunch of magic mushrooms on your plate and do stuff like that because it's something that takes a lot of training to really know how to do effectively and safely. Uh, but I must say that it was a very good decision and I'm glad I had the maturity to know how to use the medicines intelligently. One of our greatest decisions Penny and I ever made was taking on Gavin and Gabby Jennings as our partners and having Gavin take over as CEO so Penny could focus on assisting me and on both of us having less stress in our lives while at the same time improving the management and the staff of the Institute and being able to get a lot more done because Gavin and Gabby are two incredibly intelligent and incredibly capable and powerful people. So I had been asking Great Spirit for help for a number of years. And there was times when I was ready to actually sell the Institute because I just felt like I needed to retire and spend time painting and just being with myself after traveling the world for 25 years, working my backside off. But uh, it really worked out beautifully, and I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. So thank you, Gavin and Gabby, and to our entire staff. Now, along the way, uh, eight years ago, probably almost nine years ago now, Penny and I decided to explore uh, our life with Angie as our second wife, and it's something that we talked about carefully both Penny and I and Angie and Penny and I. And it's just something that we grew into. It wasn't any kind of religious thing or anything like that. Angie helped me a lot with my midlife crisis and she was having one of her own. So 
through that process, we bonded very deeply. And her mission, vision, and values are completely aligned with mine. And she's got a lot of amazing skills, as many of you that have been her students know very well. And uh, so we agreed to do that and become a family. And that led to the birth of Bana first, who's now five, and then Zoe, who's like 20 months now. And it's been truly the most amazing amazing and heart-opening experience, I think, in all of our lives that we could ever imagine. And that's not to exclude my first son. He, he was a, a very powerful experience, and I'm very proud of his growth and development. And then my next great experience, which I must admit Penny tried to get me to do for about four years before I finally decided to do it, was starting this podcast. Yay, Penny! And I tell you, I love podcasting. I think it's one of the most amazing means of sharing and educating and getting mobile entertainment and just such an amazing use of technology. And along with that, we moved into our new rainbow home in Fallbrook, California, and it took us five years to find it. And we meditated, and I blew smoke, and we did a prayer each day, and thank Great Spirit. And we were very clear on what we were looking for, and we spent a lot of time looking at a lot of places all over the area here in, in San Diego, driving often as much as an hour and a half to look at places. And we were persistent, and we waited. We had a few places that we thought might work, but they needed this or that, or there was always something too much missing that I felt would be more hassle than I wanted to have to deal with. But sure enough, we found her. I think she found us too. So some of you have been here. It's just an absolutely amazing place on top of a mountain with amazing views and a big pond. And we've got a beautiful gym and classroom. And my office is in the guest house, which is gorgeous. And our Main house is a beautiful house with a swimming pool and a sauna and beautiful big play area for the kids. And it has an Olympic volleyball court that I turned into my rock stacking area, which is amazing because it has a, about a 16-foot fence around it, kind of like you have around a tennis court, typically, that allows me to lock the gate so the kids can't get near my rock stacks, which used to always really be a problem at, the whole, at our home in Vista. So there's some of my positive choices. Now, of course, I could list a lot more, but I'm trying to share with you a little bit of my backstory to show you the power of choices and to show you that even good choices sometimes can be painful to make and can really require a lot of introspection and getting clear. There's also been choices that I made that did not turn out so well. Before I share some of those choices that end up bringing me growth opportunities into my life, sometimes more than I expected, I'd like to share something right at the beginning of our lesson on choices today. Though the title of our show today is Making the Optimal Decision Every Time, it's important to realize that there are many factors, which I cover in this lesson on choice, in making choices that we can't know or are unconscious of or turn out to be what I call the X factor that affects our ability to make the optimal choice every time. In my studies of the world's greatest thinkers and philosophers, which I have spent many, many years doing and studied the biographies of approximately 150 of the world's greatest thinkers and philosophers, I studied the work of 
George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, often just referred to as Hegel. One of the truths Hegel shares is how any new idea or project unfolds. And Hegel states that we, f- when we first have a- an idea, he calls that a thesis. That idea or thesis is the spark that lights the fires of the will into action. And inevitably, as we engage our process, which already means we've made the choice to do so, we encounter what Hegel calls the antithesis. The antithesis stage of the creation cycle is when we meet the unexpected. It is in this phase of our process that we should be wise enough to always expect the unexpected. So let me give you an example from my own life. Many years ago, around 1988, I was working in an orthopedic rehabilitation place uh, called Sports and Orthopedic Physical Therapy, which was also a surgical center with 13 surgeons. It was the largest physical therapy clinic in San Diego at the time. And I specialized in athletes and medical challenges and athletes that had challenges that others couldn't figure out. And it seemed like every other athlete had some kind of a problem with their hamstrings. They were literally hamstrung to sort of make a little joke out of it. One of the things I noticed reoccurring as I'd evaluate all these athletes is that, the more, and the majority of them, by the way, were marathoners, 10K runners, biathletes, triathletes, track and field athletes, hockey players, football players, basketball players. So all of those are people that run at various speeds. And then I had a number of road racing and track cyclists uh, with these types of problems and a whole variety of different others athletes. And so what I noticed is that they all had significant strength imbalances between the hip flexors and hip extensors and the knee extensors and the knee flexors, which I used to test very carefully, and I had the equipment there to do that. Being trained in hydrotherapy as well as being a competitive triathlete that spent a lot of time swimming with hand paddles to increase resistance and speed in my training I came to the realization that if I could build a gated paddle system that an athlete could wear on their foot in the deep end of a swimming pool that only created resistance in hip extension and knee flexion, I'd be able to reverse the muscle imbalance syndromes while also allowing athletes to run in deep water, which would allow them to keep their VO2 maxes up, which often diminishes quite significantly if an athlete's down and can't run for any period of time. And that would also speed their rehabilitation time while getting the healing benefits of hydrotherapy. So indeed, I did invent a very unique system that mounted to the foot, like a kind of a sandal that we hike in today. And I put extensive time, effort, and money into getting it patented. Once I had my prototype worked out and it was ready for production, I started shopping around for buyers. And sure enough, my first order came in from an athletic equipment company that wanted 4,000 pairs of my device. But they also said that they needed proof of liability insurance. So I was like, what do you need that for? You guys are the ones selling it. Uh, But anyhow, you know, so the long story of it was, they said, we can't buy them from you unless you give us proof of liability insurance. So having never come across this issue before, and of course, wanting to sell 4,000 units, which I was very excited about, I began going to insurance companies that offered coverage for liability on products such as my invention. And let me tell you, I almost fainted when I found that the best offer I could get from a liability insurance company on my product was 40,000 bucks a year. I didn't have that kind of money and I didn't want to take the risk of going into debt because to generate that kind of money would 
you know, would not only take a lot of, of the devices, and it would mean that I'd have to have some uh, significant amounts of income, or I wouldn't have enough money left over to feed the family. And I didn't want to abort my work as a therapist and go full-time into product manufacturing and product sales, even if it was my own product. So there you see that I had to learn to accept the unexpected, the X factor that I was talking about. And these types of situations are not uncommon amongst in, uh, inventors. So the final phase then of Hegel's philosophy is, in this regard is synthesis. So first we had thesis. I just described what I went through as an antithesis. And then we come to synthesis. In this particular instance, I didn't make it to the synthesis stage. Synthesis means to bring all the seemingly discordant aspects of a project or a process into harmony so you get the results that you were intended or intending to get or hoping to get. Now, I share this story, and believe me, there are several more I could share to make a point at the outset of our exploration into the power of choice and how to make the optimal choice every time. The point is that you can only make an optimal choice based on what you know and what you're aware of. I knew I had a very good idea, and all the athletes I tested with it were truly amazed and impressed with how effective it was for speeding the rehabilitation process, and I knew it would be marketable and that to protect my invention from pirates, I'd have to patent it. But having never been in the manufacturing situation, like, you know, mass manufacturing like that, and not realizing I needed liability insurance, um, I was ignorant of the X factor. But hopefully, you will not be ignorant of the X factor. And I'm sure many of you as you're listening to this are going, oh, yes, I've had some X factors in my life. But I made the best choices I could at the time. I didn't get to sell my 4,000 units and recover the 20,000 or more that I'd invested in the prototypes in the patenting process. But I did make an executive choice in regards to borrowing money to begin selling the devices in hopes of making more money, but realized that the upfront costs would now be 40,000 for the insurance, uh, 20,000 for the patenting and the prototype, which I'd already invested. And I just didn't feel the risk was something I wanted to do because it would require me, as I said earlier, to stop working as a therapist, which I know was my true calling. And that's where my heart was at. I was just, I've, all the inventions I've made have had something to do with exercise or rehabilitation as a tool for enhancing or getting better results. So I knew that I didn't want to become a full-time manufacturer. In fact, many people told me when I brought the Swiss ball to the gym industry that if I just stopped doing everything and focused on manufacturing and selling Swiss balls, I'd be a multimillionaire. And uh, looking at all the balls in the gym, gyms all over the world right now, they are correct. But again, I didn't want my life to be about making money off a piece of equipment because that wouldn't really help. I felt much more inclined to develop the education and be a vehicle for others to get that equipment, which is exactly what I did. Now, so in a backward kind of way, the synthesis of my process was, A, the joy of having invented something novel and effective that did help many athletes recover and return to high-level athletic performance, B, the skills I developed in the process, See the awareness that in the future, it would be wise to talk to people in the manufacturing business before I spent all the time, money, and energy to develop a series of prototypes 
and get a patent. So that was a big lesson. I learned about the patenting process and ultimately got three patents on different types of inventions. The lessons I learned from the first round helped me make it to the synthesis stage stage in the next two rounds. So there was a lot of positives that came out of there. Some of the choices that I made in my life that did not turn out to bring the results I expected are fighting too much with my younger brother when we were kids at home, particularly when he wanted to hang out with me and my friends. Some of you will know if you're older brothers or or, older siblings, that when you're the older one, you don't really want your little brother or sister hanging out with you for some reason. When you have your friends over, it just doesn't feel the same when you got your little brother or sister trailing around with you. And I later realized that it wasn't that he wanted to pester me, it's just that he loved me and wanted to be with me. We had a very challenging and painful childhood, and he needed my connection and love, and I didn't realize it at the time. And later, at 34, my brother committed suicide, and it was really as though the world came crashing down on my head. And the pain that I felt was only matched by when our father drowned when I was eight and he was seven. For a few years, daily, it was though I was being given a review of all the times I could have loved him more, been more understanding of his pain, but I was too self-absorbed to realize what was right in front of me, and I was also a child. The antithesis was intensely painful, and I didn't know if I'd ever make it to synthesis because I didn't realize how much I loved my brother till he was gone. So, some of the choices that we make that turn out to be negative choices, we do out of honest ignorance. But when we look back at a situation like this, unfortunately, it's hindsight is twenty twenty vision. And when I look back on our childhood and all the events that led to him committing suicide, um, I could clearly see that if I would have just loved him more and supported him and realized how much pain he was in, and we were all in pain, that was part of the problem, uh, that he might still be alive. So there's a choice that I think wasn't an optimal choice, but it shows you again how you can't always know everything you need to know. And the X factor here was just that I was just too young and too stressed to really realize what was happening. When I started the Czech Institute in 1995, I invested everything I had into the business, into marketing and development of courses, staff to support me in the process. And my success in the U.S. was very hit miss, and I couldn't figure out why some courses would fill right up to the rim, and I'd make good money, but the same course in another town might get anywhere between 5 and 13 people, and it costs as much money to put a course on for 5 as it does for 85 because you still have to rent the venue that can hold the people you hope to get and pay all the staff and all that. So back in in those days, this is a long time ago, I started doing my courses in 1988. I used to spend $1.25 per brochure and I would send out 30 to 50,000 brochures for a course in the mail. So by the time you paid the postage on that, I was putting up you know, a lot of money plus the cost of renting venues. So quite often, if I didn't get, you know, 35 plus, I wasn't 
I wasn't going to make any money at all. Um, so it became quite stressful. And um, I hired marketing experts. I hired business experts. I really hired anybody I thought could solve the riddle. I talked to people that I knew were successful. And the only thing that I got from all these consultations was that the seminar business was what we used to call it, the seminar business back then, was notoriously an unstable business, like owning a restaurant. And everybody gave me the best advice, and I did everything I could possibly do. And then I started an investigation and spoke to people that took my workshops, because one of the things I found is the most elite people in the world were coming to my workshops. Many, many of the doctors and therapists from professional sports teams, not only in the US, but all over the world, were attending my workshop. So of the 10 to 13 people, or even 5 to 13 people, they would all be the most elite people. So I began going to all these people, because I had all their names and contact details, and asking them, well, why is it that you came to my workshop, and why do you think others aren't coming? And the most consistent thing I heard is that well, the people that I shared your brochure with found out you didn't have a college degree and they didn't think you could teach them anything. So I said, well, then why did you come? And they said, well, I read the brochure and it was very clear to me that the concepts you were talking about and just the way you wrote the brochure indicated very clearly that you had not only a lot of knowledge, but had some very unique concepts that were interesting. So what I ultimately found out was that the typical American was so brainwashed into believing that if you didn't have a college degree, you were a nobody. That was an interesting ride. But I got to the point where I was living off of credit cards and more and more uh, debt was piling up. So I went to my accountant who advised me at the time to consult a bankruptcy attorney, attorney which he re referred me to. And when the bankruptcy attorney saw that I was 131000 in debt, he concluded that I should file bankruptcy. And, you know, I didn't really realize the magnitude of that. I was, you know, barely surviving at the time. And so I took the advice because that's what I pay these guys to do, accountants and lawyers and people like that. And I thought that I had no choice at the time, but that was probably one of the worst decisions I ever made. And it made it impossible to get a loan, not only for the seven years at the bankruptcy is allowed to be kept on records by banks, but a lot longer than that. And it turns out that they have ways of, you know, finding out you've had a bankruptcy or they keep their own records and save it on file. And nobody would touch me for a loan with a 10-foot pole, even when I was doing really well financially. Shortly after I went through the bankruptcy, I got invited to lecture in Australia and New Zealand. And the people there absolutely loved my teachings. They saw them as revolutionary. And they were everyone, again, from medical doctors to therapists on elite teams to coaches to massage therapists and dance and movement educators and you know chiropractors and osteopaths. So when I was over there teaching at the Australian Institute of Sport is when I met Penny and her and I, shall we say, we, we found that we had a lot of harmony together. And then we got together when I was going to teach my next workshop there, which was, I think, only two or three weeks away. And we spent 
four days together and decided to get engaged and get married. And that was 24 plus years ago now. Now, interestingly, Penny took my business over uh, from the money we made selling my courses and teaching. She got herself a master's degree at Colorado State in business, and she took over the whole business. She'd already taken it over, but she got a lot more education. And within about three years, we were bringing in over $2.5 million a year. And I realized then that I could have easily paid off all my debts without a flinch of a problem. So there's that nasty little X factor, that antithesis again. Next is my first son. He was born when I just turned 18. And my parents and her and his mother Sue's parents didn't have any money, so we had no family support. All I knew was that I had to support my family, and I did whatever it took to pay for our home and feed us and have a car and all the things. What I didn't realize was that being so focused on making money and on my career development was that I wasn't spending nearly enough time with Paul Jr., and ultimately that hurt him very deeply and caused a lot of pain between us over the years, but now that he's in his 40s and has a family of his own, our relationship is in better shape than it's ever been, and he has a lot more empathy for what it (laughs) was that drove me to focus on working so hard now that he's got a child of his own, and he's got three because his others, because his partner had three kids when they got together. So sometimes we're all learning together. I think all the time we are. At the time, I thought I was making the right decision. And even when he wanted me to play basketball or do the kinds of things kids love to do with their dad, quite often I told him I was too busy because I'd become conditioned to the idea that I had to work, work, work to keep money coming in. And the only way I could see to advance my career and get to the point where money wasn't a limiting issue was to work really hard. And I was raised in a family that always had money problems. It was one of the main things that my parents fought about. So as a child, I pretty much got programmed that money is always a challenge and that money creates a lot of stress for people. So it took me some work to heal that programming. But now that I'm older and wiser, and I realize that money uh, is no compensation for the needs of, of a child, I realize how to do things differently. And that pain ultimately led me to being a better father. So now when Paul Jr. sees how I'm parenting his brother and sister, even though he's like, you know, a lot older than they are, he really feels joy because he knows how important that is and how much he missed my support and attention and company. So in a sense, we've both learned lessons that are now helping us both be better parents. And uh, and he's a great daddy, so I'm very, very proud of him. So this is my way of letting you know that you can only make the best choice you can with the knowledge and wisdom you have at the time. And even when you're quite sure you're making the optimal choice, it's wise to expect anything. Because if there's one thing I've learned... It's that life is truly a shamanic journey. And a lot of you know very deeply what that means. I also learned that it's important to have faith in yourself and have faith in love. Inevitably, there's undulations in life and we cannot know what to expect. We all have blind spots and the life we live is entangled with other lives and we are a part of those lives and 
they're a part of us and as you know we're also part of the earth and the earth is a living organism that's part of a solar system which is part of a galactic process which is part of a universal process so you know when you really look at that honestly and how for example an earthquake can affect all of us and it's an x factor that could happen right in the middle of a launch of our product or a covid for example can really throw an x factor there so a lot of people were making very good choices in their life but lost their business and even lost their home through covid uh, due to the unknowable x factor therefore one of my first lessons to share about making choices is that because there's always x factors and some of them can and will be very stressful and challenging on many levels, it is essential to live as balanced a lifestyle as possible, which is why I speak so much and try to inspire people to live with awareness of what Dr. Happiness is, what Dr. Movement is, Dr. Quiet, and Dr. Diet, because without that awareness and values to support those behaviors, you're not likely to have the energy to meet the challenges of creating something significant in your life. I've watched a lot of people try and fail repeatedly. If you don't have your four doctors in balance, you're probably not going to be fit enough physically, emotionally, or spiritually to handle what the world gives you or what your soul wants you to experience for your own growth. And that is one of the reasons we have so much anxiety, depression, and suicide today. People are just not ready to deal with the challenges that life surprises them with so they collapse into themselves. People are just not balanced enough to be ready for unexpected changes like COVID. Always have some reserves in your tank because if you don't, you will either learn the hard way or you may end up dead. And I've seen it happen many times and I do mean that. So with this preface to our important lesson on how to make optimal choices every time, let's dive deeper into the relevant issues of optimal decisions every time. So now that we've got my preamble, my, my preface out of the way, which I felt was important and I wanted to share from my own life just what positive choices and not so good choices can look like or the X factor can look like, let's talk about what is a choice. Choices generally result in the following effects. Choices condition energy, both creating and using information. Remember, until energy is put to use, it's just pure potential. It's not potentially even energy. It's just potential. So we all take potential and activate it or actuate it. And one of the things that's so important to understand is that the word intention means to put potential into tension. So for those of you that know the Tai Chi symbol... That is a field of tensions. But behind Tai Chi, which you could say means life, is Wu Chi. Wu means not Chi, not life. So that's where the home of pure potential is, or where I would say source lives, which would be God in all caps, capital G, capital O, capital D, which is not a God you can know or describe, which is, to my knowledge, what God really is. So when we make a choice, if we have an intention, then we bring energy out of potential into actuation. And that movement of potential is called energy. And because we have an intention, we also 
are using information to put potential into formation. Choices also bifurcate or split energy and information, such as the split of a business relationship or a divorce or the splitting of an atom. Choices are actions that affirm or deny. They include or exclude. The choice to marry someone is an inclusive choice, and the choice to get a divorce is a choice that produces exclusion in some way, shape, or form. Choices have the magical power to make change. Whether that magic is white magic or black magic is dependent upon your intentions. An adult that sexually abuses a child, for example, is using the dark side of themselves to make choices. And a parent that looks very carefully at the arguments around and the science around both issues of such things as vaccination or circumcision is using white magic or the light within them, i.e. they don't know for sure until they look at both sides of an argument, so they have to illuminate their question mark. And that would be a positive use of choice. Because choice gives us the power to create or destroy, change our environment, and change our lives and the lives of others, we are gods. And that is a god with a small g, little g-o-d. Beings that do not know they have the power of choice are not gods. They are beings that live unconsciously according to their nature, as part of nature. No bear, for example, starts a force fire, not because there's no disgruntled bears out there, but because they're not conscious of the power of the choices outside their own instincts. Human beings have their God powers to create and to destroy. We are truly gods. Now, what is the power of choice? Choice always results in some kind of change or information or affirmation of the status quo. So we're either changing something, we're creating information, or we're choosing to stick with the status quo. Choice is the most powerful influence we have on ourselves, others, and the world. Choice is very powerful, and it's your ability to choose that gives you free will. Though there is much debate in the scientific and philosophical circles as to whether or not we have free will, the answer to both parties is yes, we do, and we don't. And I will explain that to you. When we're unconscious of our actions or acting out of our shadow, we don't have free will. We are puppets on the strings of our programmers. And the sad part of this is that as we choose to embark on the spiritual path and do our work to become conscious and heal our shadow, we come to realize that the very things we most dislike about ourselves and others is exactly what we disliked about our parents, pastors, preachers, and others that programmed us. To truly have free will, we must bring the unconscious contents that limit us and often keep us stuck in the child archetype into consciousness. We must look deeply and honestly into the darkness of our personal shadow and find the parts of ourselves that tend toward risk, danger, sexual aggressiveness, racial biases, hate, anger, manipulation, greed, selfishness, and all that we judge and criticize in other people. So if there's an important tip for you, I want you to know where to begin your shadow work, and that is just keep a notebook and list all your judgments of yourselves and others in it. A wise man once reminded me that whenever we point the finger at others, there are three pointing back at us. Start by looking carefully and honestly at each such judgment and ask yourself, is it really true? For example, if you call somebody an asshole, or you 
accuse someone of stealing from you, but you don't know for sure it's really true, that's a very, very important question to ask honestly. Then ask yourself in that situation, what would love do now and act accordingly? And now that's a very, very simple, but not so easy thing to do because the ego is very, very invested in its own biases. And I will talk more about the ego later. But if we just simply ask, is it really true before we make a judgment and then ask what love would do now and act accordingly, we will begin to heal our shadow and gain more free will. The simple fact is that very few among us are willing enough or brave enough to do that. Those of you that do or have and respond accordingly from your heart and have made amends with the people you needed to, including yourself, are the only ones that truly have free will. COVID has been a very good exercise to determine if you are unconsciously caught in the child archetype and believe that whatever any so-called authority figure tells you which is losing your free will, uh, is correct. In other words, if you believe everything you see in the media and you don't do your own research to look into it and you're running off to get injections or whatever else it might be, then you don't have any free will. And that's exactly what they want because people with no free will are profit centers for rich people that know how to manipulate them. Or if you have the power of critical thinking and discernment, and the willingness to be free in any such situation, then you're free. The truth, and the truth is the only thing that will ultimately set you free. You can hold anyone's body captive, but you cannot hold uh, any man's mind or, or woman, and I'm using man in the general sense here. You can't hold any man or woman's mind captive unless the individual allows it to happen. And having studied books about people that were caught in prison camps for years on end, be it Nelson Mandela or others, one of the key things that the people that got out of prison and went on to achieve great things said was that they realized while they were in prison that, and Nelson Mandela was an example of someone that was tortured quite a lot, and I've studied the lives of others such as Dennis Coffey, for example, who was captured in Vietnam and tortured for eight years, but realized that the best thing he could do was to create freedom in his mind. So what he did was went to his imaginary golf course and played golf every day. And interestingly enough, when he got home from Vietnam, the first thing he wanted to do is go play golf to see how good he was. And his first game in eight years after being in prison camp and being tortured, I think he took eight or 10 strokes off his best game, though he had not touched a golf club. He did it all in his mind. We may not always be able to control the circumstances of our lives, but we do have a choice regarding how we respond to them, and how we respond is a good litmus test to determine our degree of spiritual maturity and freedom as an individual. Now, in my holistic lifestyle coaching program and various other places offered through the Czech Institute, I teach what I call the three-choice model. And having spent years studying these types of things, I found that there's really only three choices we can make in relationship to any person, place, or thing, and that includes ourselves. Those three choices I define as the optimal, the suboptimal, and the choice to do nothing. The optimal choice is always the one that's best for you and everybody involved on your dream team. 
Earlier I told you about how I made the choice to work more than I should have and didn't spend enough time with my son and or my wife. And I thought I was making the optimal choice at the time, but admittedly I wasn't listening to my wife's request to come home earlier and spend more time with my son and spend more time with her. So therefore I wasn't really paying attention to the needs of my dream team. But I could not be the person I am without my son, Paul Jr., and my first wife, Sue, because they supported me in becoming that person. And it was because of the arrival of Paul Jr. that a spiritual fire was lit under me as a father, and my instincts for survival turned on and drove me to a willingness to do whatever I had to do to take care of my family. So suboptimal choices are usually the choices that we make in order to please our personal needs or our ego, but often create problems on the dream team. So even though it may work for you, it may create more problems than you want to deal with. So just to review, the optimal choice is the one that's best not only for you, but everybody on your dream team. And those are the people supporting you in the accomplishment of your objective and that are in harmony with your mission, vision, values, and dream. The suboptimal choice, again, is the one that you make that seems to be optimal for you, but usually causes problems in relationships, particularly with people on your dream team. The next choice is do nothing. And there's a variety of options. There's three options on that choice. One, it's best to do nothing and call a timeout if you're finding yourself in an argument with somebody that you love or someone that you work with or in general with anybody, but you find that you're not able to stay connected at the heart and you're having a hard time hearing what they're really asking or dealing with the criticisms or anything else. So when you're in a situation like that and you feel that you're losing connection to that person and you're finding it hard to act with empathy and compassion toward that person, then it's best to call a timeout, just like a, a you know the captain of a basketball team would do if they're getting their ass kicked and it's close to halftime or the end of the game and they need to really draw the group together, the team together, to try to get themselves out of trouble. So calling a timeout is a very, very wise thing to do, and right away you'll find out how mature the other person is, because if someone's immature and you call a timeout, and the way I do that is I simply say, look, I, I really would like to be able to stay connected to you at the heart so we can resolve this together, but right now I'm having a hard time doing that. So how about if we reconvene when we can both cool down a little bit and listen from our heart and stay connected. Now, even with that kind of exit, many people will just come at you tooth and nail because they just are so invested in justifying their side of the argument or winning uh, that they're not really mature enough to realize that a relationship is about both parties. The next is you call a timeout when you need more information. For example, if you need to buy a new car and you go to a Ford dealership and they're trying to sell you a car that's $50,000 and it has all the bells and whistles you want and it's very sexy and you're all excited about buying it, but you know that it's beyond your budget. That 
could give you a sexy looking car that stresses the hell out of you for the next five years, probably making the payments, depending on how much you put down. But in this situation, whenever you need more information to make an informed decision, it's best to do nothing. In other words, don't buy the car. Don't say yes. Don't say no. Just simply say, I need time to gather more information and I'll get back to you. And inevitably, you drive down the road to the Toyota dealer and you find a Japanese-made car that has all the same bells and whistles and even gets better gas mileage and costs you $10,000 less. And you realize, wow, if I would have bought that car an hour ago at the Ford dealership, I would have really probably been frustrated when I found out uh, somebody else at work has this Toyota or comparative Japanese car that's a far better deal. So calling a timeout when you need to gather more information is a wise thing to do. But gathering information requires critical thinking or what I call holistic thinking. And to think critically or holistically means you have to look at the evidence on both sides of any issue or argument. You can't just trust the Ford guy. You got to go to the Toyota guy and the Nissan guy and whoever else has a car like that in your price range. You have to look at the science, but you must also be wise enough to follow the money because today most science is bought and paid for. So until you know who's funding research, you really don't know uh, how much you can trust it especially if you study quantum physics, which clearly shows that any scientist that has an agenda or a preconceived notion about the outcome of an experiment will skew the experiment in favor of their bias, and that's hard science. If you don't know enough about how to evaluate research to see if it's asking the right questions and gathering the answers in ways congruent with the question at hand, then you'd be very wise to find someone that can help you make that evaluation. Look for others that have experienced and been through and succeeded with the issue you're having to face and make a choice in regard to because they will have wisdom. Wisdom is only available as a product of experience and experience comes with making mistakes. So finding wise people to guide you can save you a lot of time, energy, and money. For example, you could go to the Toyota dealer, and instead of buying the car, say, well, now that I know that this car exists, let me send some emails out to my friends and see if they know anybody that has one of these cars or ask the Toyota dealer for some references for uh, three people that have bought one of those cars uh, within the last three years, preferably at least a year, so that you can contact them and say, you know, how do you like your car? What kind of challenges have you had with it? How's the service? Have there been any booby traps or surprises? Then you're hearing it directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. To think critically, you also have to be very careful that your own dogma isn't blinding you to a greater truth. And then you have to be brave enough to hear the truth or you never become wise and you will never have free will. Many of us simply do not want to hear the truth especially if it means more work for us or it means admitting we were wrong. And this is why dogmas uh, take so long to die. Uh, There's a saying in science that the leaders of science have to die before new ideas can emerge because they put such a chokehold on the younger scientists coming through the ranks. We also need to look not only at quantitative assessments, which give materialistic 
scientific answers to questions, but we've also we need to look at the qualitative assessment. Having a car that isn't quantitatively, or excuse me, that is quantitatively better based on market research may give you a better car, but the quality of your life may go down because of the stress of the car payments. So quality of life is actually usually more important than quantity in life. You can't measure everything that's important. No scientist can objectively measure love. But what would your life be like without love, even if you got straight A's on your math exams, or you were a great uh, quantum physicist, or you were a smart research doctor, but you had no love in your life? You might as well just be a robot. So the point is, quality is not only as important as quantity, or qualitative assessment is not only as important as quantitative assessment, it actually turns out, in my experience, to be more important. For example, having two spouses may increase the quantity of sex you have, but may decrease the quality of each relationship if all involved are not mature enough and spiritually evolved enough to make the sacrifices necessary to create harmony in the family. Our third do-nothing option is unfortunately, the worst possible choice you can make, and that is to be apathetic. To be apathetic means to not care. Research shows that parents that are apathetic produce children with a higher rate of criminality and disease than parents who are abusive to their children, because at least parents that are being abusive are making contact and giving attention to their children but apathetic parents simply don't care. So it's as though the child is being utterly ignored, which is a terribly dangerous thing to do, not only to a child, but to yourself or anybody else. So when people are apathetic about choices, they simply basically don't make a choice. They just hope it'll just go away. And I've had many students ask me, well, what's so bad about that? I can't see what the problem with that is. And I simply say, good. Then when your mortgage payment comes in the mail, just ignore it for a few months and see what happens. When the bill for your car comes in from the lender, just ignore it. And it won't be long before you'll hear the sound of rattling chains and you'll look out your window and see a tow truck coming to repossess your car and there will be a cop parked right there in case you start trying to get violent. So choosing not to choose is choosing. Next, let's discuss mind and making choices. To do that, I'm going to talk to you about archetypes, because archetypes, based on my research, are the root language of consciousness. We can't actually be conscious without an archetype. So, to begin with, I'll just give you a quick overview. An archetype is an original pattern or a primordial pattern or form. So if you want an idea of an archetype, we all have fingerprints, every one of us. But none of them are the same. So our fingerprints make us human, but within that concept, there's as much variety as there are humans on the planet. The idea of a tree is an archetype. And the archetype of the tree not only includes trees that grow out of the ground, but includes any kind of a tree such as a hat tree that you see often when you go into restaurants to hang your hat on or your jacket on, or a tree diagram such as the kind used by computer software programmers to show you the uh, 
basic structure of your software. If you think of the English language, it's made of 26 archetypes, the alphabet. And out of those archetypes or the root language, if you will, of English, we can make a myriad of words, sentences, paragraphs, books, etc. So when we're talking about mind and choices, it's important to understand that the mind functions on archetypes which are the basis of ideas. All ideas about trees come from the archetype of the tree. All ideas about men and women or mothers and fathers come from the archetypal concept of the mother and the father. So to do this, I'd like to use an example from tarot. In tarot, tarot number one is the magician, and the magician represents the power of the mind, which is the primary means of making a choice. The tarot has been alive for thousands of years. It's of Egyptian origin, although many experts on tarot deny that or don't know that, but I've studied it quite extensively, and without going into a segue, I would tell you that my research, not only in books, but in, in by spiritual means, has uh, given me evidence to believe that Egyptian, basically the Egyptian priests of high accord, or even Egyptian gods, it depends on what your philosophy is, created the tarot as a series of archetypes that were experiences that were used to initiate Egyptian priests in their training. So because tarot is a system of archetypes that is timeless, based on timeless truths, anyone that's unaware of what tarot really is, yet criticizes it, fears it, or refers to it as the devil's work as either ignorant of the deep truth of archetypes, programmed or biased, or afraid to look into themselves. Uh, really, tarot is a bunch of archetypal images on a piece of paper. So <laughs> when people start thinking that a stack of cards is the work of the devil, then they've really got a very immature <laughs> level of understanding of how the mind works and how life works and many other things. And if you think that, then I suspect you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast because you'd be a bit too shallow for the level I present these podcasts at. Now, none of these situations make for a person that will experience free will, i.e. referring to people that deny things like tarot without looking into them and using the kind of holistic thinking I told you about nor will they reach their potential to become wise. But in our discussion of choice, I brought this up because I wanted to share with you that in tarot number one, the magician, there are key tools that are showed in the image that have a huge impact on our ability to make choice. So if you look at the tarot number one, you'll see a magician standing at a table and he has tools there with him. They are the wand, which is the symbol of wisdom, the sword, which is the symbol of mind, the cup, which symbolizes emotion, and the unconscious, and the coin. And so I'll take you through each of those and explain a little bit more about them so you can see that what I'm sharing with you is, is not only archetypes, but these are archetypes that have a tremendous influence on your capacity to make the optimal choice every time. So we'll start with the wand, which looks like 
a walking cane, but in tarot it often has sprouts growing out of it because that symbolizes that the mind is capable of producing new life. So the wand in tarot relates to the fire element, which is a volatile element. In tarot and in alchemy, you have four elements, earth, water, fire, and air. The term volatile means it has the capacity to make something else move. Air is also a volatile element. Earth and water are passive elements. No pile of rocks ever assembled itself into a watch, for example, or made metal out of itself, or a car. Somebody had to use consciousness coupled with fire to make that happen. So earth and water are passive. Water won't do anything unless it's moved by gravity, wind, or some other force. The air element, air, wind, and the fire element can both move water, as we know. So the wand represents the fire element. It's volatile. It also represents source energy. It represents archetypes. It represents transformation, taking action, gaining wisdom, the power to create change and make things happen. It represents willpower. In Kabbalah, fire represents source and is the home of intuition. Intuition, as I will share later, if I remember right, delivers information, insights, and messages in wholes, not parts. The sword represents the air element, again volatile, and it represents cutting. Thinking is a cutting process. In fact, the alchemists of antiquity referred to the mind as the logos cutter. Logos means the word or source energy or, you know, in the Bible it talks about in the beginning was the word and the word was God. So you could say in the beginning was the mind and mind was God because you have to have an idea which requires a mind to create something. So the sword is linked to thinking which is cutting. Whenever you say anything, you're cutting out something from the whole. If I say, look over there at the black cat, and there's five cats of different colors standing there, you know I'm not talking about the brown cat, the polka-dotted tabby cat, or the white cat. I'm talking about the brown cat. So there you see mind has a cutting function. If we're doing a mathematical equation, and we say two plus two is four, we had to cut out all other possibilities or we would not get the right answer. It's also important to remember that the archers, or excuse me, the um, air element, the magician's sword is a double-edged sword, which means you have to be very careful with the power of the mind and the power of choice because it can easily help and it can easily harm. That's the metaphor of the double-edged sword. In HLC training, I teach my students that mind represents the archer because choices are like arrows. Once you let an arrow go from your bow, you cannot call it back and you will never run fast enough to catch it. So once we make a choice, we have made a change not only in the world, but in the universe. And that change has repercussions. It ripples on for better or worse indefinitely. So the archer is the executor, it can be the ego, and for a more spiritually evolved person, the ego takes the back seat and the soul takes the driver's seat, or what is referred to as the higher self, which is why spiritual training is so helpful, because you learn to use 
all of your potential, not just the programmed ego, which is uh, potentially very dangerous. All you got to do is look at Donald Trump as an example of what happens when you have a lot of power, but you haven't learned to use more than your ego to make decisions. Next, we have the chalice or the cup on the magician's table, which represents the water element, which again is passive, and the chalice symbolizes emotion, flow, feelings and values, and self-reflection, but it also symbolizes won't power. Fire is related to willpower, and water controls fire, so water represents to won't power or correlates to won't power. Won't power means I won't eat more food than I need, or I won't have sex with somebody outside of my committed relationship, or I won't do things that aren't congruent with my values. People that have addictions have no won't power, or they wouldn't have addictions. And again, water controls fire. So this is important because some of us are very fiery intellectually. We, very, we think very fast, and we over-rely on our mind and ignore our emotions, and that's a very dangerous thing to do. The coin represents the earth element, which again is passive. The earth element, or the coin in tarot, represents embodiment, the body itself. Anything that contains, such as a cookie jar contains, or a canteen contains water, represents the home. Um, It represents money, because it's a tangible good that is a symbol for energy, so it contains the power to make things happen. It represents fixation. So whatever the archer's arrow hits creates irreversible embodiment. If you punch someone in the face, you've embodied your choice, and now there's no taking it back. You can't unhurt somebody's nose or unbreak their nose. So with that discussed, we can see that we have to, well, we we can choose to use the power of the fire element and use our capacity to understand archetypes, and we can use our capacity for intuition, and we can also be aware that some of the ideas and beliefs that we have may not be true and transform them in the fire of wisdom or higher learning. The air element represents the mind itself, but we have to be careful because if we release the arrow before we have gathered enough information or when we're acting reflexively instead of responsively, then the archer can actually get us in a lot of trouble. And the water element relating to emotions and the unconscious is extremely powerful because emotions are more powerful than thoughts. Uh, all you got to do is look at you know, all the things people do out of emotion for better or worse, whether that be singing, dancing, and acting, or uh, killing their spouse because they found out they were having an affair. Now, rationally, their mind would know that that's a very dangerous thing to do, even if they cheated on you, but the emotions overpower the mind. And if you want to learn more about that, you can study Daniel Goldman's books. You can study Dalai Lama's books on emotion. Um, you can study Thich Nhat Hanh. There's quite a number of people out there. 
Um, you can study uh, the book How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman, Feldman Barrett, I believe. Lisa Feldman Barrett, How Emotions Are Made. Fantastic book. So water also symbolizes the unconscious in tarot and in many systems for a lot of reasons I won't get into because it would just get too technical. But the point I'm making is we have to think effectively we have the option to use the fire element, our intuition, and get clear on what needs to be transformed if something's in the way of meeting our objective. We need to have the water element because it brings us in touch with our emotions and our feelings and our values and it is the home of self-reflection. And so we need to look into ourselves and ask, is this really true? Am I making the right decision right now? And we also need the won't power that comes with water and the coin means whatever choice we make becomes embodied, and that choice has currency. Something's going to happen. Hello, everybody. How are you? How have you been doing this year? I'm asking these questions in all seriousness. When I ask them of people nowadays, they may say they're fine, or they're getting by, or maybe a better than most. But none of them say I'm thriving. I know it's no surprise to you. You listen to my podcast, so you know all about what's going on in the world right now. Many of you have had careers derailed, struggled with your relationships, or felt the bite of money problems. But I'm not talking to you now to get wrapped up in all the challenges we're facing. I'm speaking to you right now just to say getting by isn't enough, and you don't have to settle for that. It's time for all of us to thrive, and we can do it. If you're skeptical, this month I'm going to show you how. For the entire month of April, you'll find a ton of special videos, Instagram live sessions, and two solo podcasts I've recorded, all focused on providing you with the tools and motivation to thrive personally and professionally, even under the toughest of times. I had a great time recording these podcasts. They're on important topics that I haven't spoken about before, and I really want to give you a preview, but I'm keeping it secret for now. I think you're going to love them, though. To cap the month off, you'll be able to get some real nutrition to thrive during our special three-day registration event on April 30th through May the 2nd. For those three days, you can register for any of the Czech Institute advanced training programs at incredible prices. That's all of my advanced programs too, including my Functional Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1 course that has launched many careers in the field of holistic health and optimization, and it's also the course I produced for the public so that anyone could get themselves healthy, vital, and thrive. If you're done with just getting by, if you're ready to make use of your boundless potential and be the best version of yourself personally and professionally, then here's my suggestion. Go to chekinstitute.com forward slash thrive. You can do that now. You'll find our full schedule of events, and you'll find out how you can get a head start on registering for the Czech Advanced Training Program of your choice at our special Thrive rates. That's chekinstitute.com forward slash thrive. Let's grow together. Come join us. I'm excited to share with all of you. Did you know that symbiotica means harmony? And you're really likely to enjoy my podcast with Sherveen Jaffaria, the founder of Symbiotica. Symbiotic is an amazing company that makes excellent products to aid healing, enhance longevity, and improve performance at all levels of your being, from your spiritual practices to your athletic endeavors. 
I highly recommend you go to symbiotica.com and check out their top-notch organically sourced products that include excellent tasting supplements like their Synergy Vitamin B12, which elevates energy naturally, to their Shilaj minerals, which help you better regulate your hormonal system. Their biocharge activated coconut charcoal is an excellent detox support and removes toxins and poisons from the body quickly and non-invasively. Their organic longevity formula is one of my friends and students' favorites. They rave about it. I really enjoy their Regenesis liposomal glutathione for its amazing antioxidant powers, which is really helpful for anyone that enjoys vaporizing tobacco and herbs like I do. They also have great immune support products, water filtration options for drinking and showering, and some cool clothing and more. When you go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use your Living 4D discount code, which is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 on checkout, you get 15% off anything they sell and you won't be disappointed. Enjoy Symbiotica. So now let's look into where within ourselves our choices come from. We're going to begin with looking at levels of choice. My first comment on levels of choice is Shakespeare's saying, to thine own self be true, or thou canst be true to any other man. I did a series on my YouTube channel called The Fastest Way to Health, and my first tip to get healthy fast is simply not to bullshit yourself. Don't lie to yourself, especially when you've got important choices to make. If you don't know when you're lying to yourself, then you're likely to make a lot of ineffective choices that can lead to pain and challenges in relationship to yourself and others. Sometimes the best thing you can do is hold still. And usually the more urgency there is for making a choice, the more important it is to pause and be still. And as I will show you, pay very close attention to what's happening inside when you focus on the question that is oriented to the choice, like should I or shouldn't I? Next is the soul self. Now the soul is quite a complex topic, so I'm going to share a summary of it in in abstract form, meaning a, a shortened version of it. The first level I'd like to talk about is what is called the higher self. That, in quantum physics, would correlate to the superconscious, which is all possibilities existing simultaneously. That would also correlate to the source from which all emerges, which would be prime source, the zero-point field, or God in all caps. But because that is within us, and that is the source of everything... If we can access the superconscious by being very still and holding the question, but waiting for the answer, not trying to answer it with our intellectual mind or our ego self, oftentimes the answer will appear in an intuitive flash, like a lightning bolt of intuitive knowing. And you'll know that you know because you will have a sense of alignment. You'll have a sense of inner assurance that you're doing the right thing. And If you practice that, you will find that it is almost always correct. And if it's not, it's because you let something like fear get in the way. The word soul means consciousness within. Soul is what is having the experience of being you. Spirit 
is the flow of energy and information that creates the experience you are having at any given moment. So soul is, in metaphor, the shaman's drum, and spirit is what's moving the drumstick. So the shaman's drum, it is made of earth, the earth element, things of the earth. Remember, those things are passive. Wood and leather is what makes a shaman's drum. And it will respond to whatever you do to it. So spirit is what's moving the drumstick. So if you're making music with the drum, spirit is what makes your hand move the drumstick, strike the drum, and then the vibration of the drum and the sound of the music and the feelings that you have, those are all the territory of soul. So the body of the drum would be inclusive of soul. Steiner says anything that has an inside and an outside has a soul. So spirit and mind are synonyms, and it's up to you to determine if your choices are making noise or music, and your soul will tell you how it feels about it. Soul includes your feelings, your emotions. Feelings are slightly different than emotions, and I'll talk about that a little more later, but feelings orient to values, and emotions are the experience of energy moving through us. Emotions are also linked strongly to our instincts and the health and vitality of our organs, because each of our glands and organs contributes to our emotional experience. Soul is also our memories and how our body responds to any stimulus or input, such as the feelings, gestures, postures, and visceral responses you get when faced with a choice like, should I marry this person, or should I have sex with this person, or should I buy this house, or take this job? If you pay close attention, your mind might be saying, oh, wow, you're going to make a hundred thousand bucks next year or this year. But your stomach might all of a sudden feel knotted, or your intestines might tighten up, or you might notice that you have to pee very frequently, all of which are stress reactions, which means your intellect, your ego, and your body are giving you two different messages, which is called a double message, which leads to confusion. But since your body does not know how to tell a lie or does not have ulterior motives other than keeping you alive, it is wise to remember that your body's a much better sounding board than your ego. <laughs> I can assure you that. Okay, so those are some of your first tips. Next is archetypes. We've talked about that a bit already, but you always want to ask yourself what archetype is active in you and how does it relate to the choice you're about to make? Now, I spoke earlier of the four archetype, or I spoke, spoke of, uh, of a variety of archetypes and what archetypes are. But now, in Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 2, we, we have archetypes in our training because understanding archetypes turns out to be absolutely essential to effectively coaching people. And anyone that's doing life coaching that doesn't understand archetypes is like a mechanic um, missing probably the most important tool in their toolbox. So, for example, my most primary archetype is the father archetype. Before Mana was born, it wasn't. Before Mana was born, it was probably the hermit. But once I became a father, I didn't want to make the same mistake I told you that I'd made with my first son. So, I had to consciously make sure that I listened 
to my fathering instincts above and beyond the other archetypes that are active within me. You saw earlier what happened when my caregiver's archetype, which includes anything to do with caregiving, such as being a therapist or a coach, was put in front of my father archetype. My second archetype is the hermit, because my real drive, what really drives me, and it's very hard for me to keep the hermit down, because the hermit is the part of me that wants to disappear into the mountains and meditate and do Tai Chi and talk to my soul and love Mother Nature and absorb the beauty all day, especially at my age where I've worked hard all my life. So the idea of retirement is very sexy to me. Although I doubt I'll ever retire like retire, but to uh, to just have the hermit life would be exotic. So my second archetype is the hermit because that's what moves through me the most. That's what's been active in me my whole life. The hermit is the one that goes into the mountains to master their craft so that they have authentic knowledge And then when the weight of knowledge is so heavy that they have to share it with the world, they come back down the mountain and share the gifts of their own self-realization with others. In the priority of my archetypes, third is the teacher and fourth is the athlete. Now, many of you that are students of the Czech Institute know that I have the teacher archetype very strongly. But it's the hermit that is the one that developed all the knowledge that I teach, and it's the athlete that backs it up, (laughs) especially when it comes to athletic things. But it's the father that is the impetus to do the work to create the safety and security for my family and the institute that makes the life of the hermit meaningful and gives the teacher something to teach and the athlete archetype is a big part of what keeps me healthy. Now, some of you may not really have enough knowledge to figure this all out on your own, but if you look into Carolyn Mice's work, she has a lot of great information on archetypes. She has a archetype card deck, which lists all the common archetypes that we use in our human life. And one of the exercises I do with my patients and clients as part of their coaching is I sit with them as we sift through those cards. And I say, the first thing I want you to do is just pull out any of these cards, which has an image and a name, such as fashionista, businessman, builder, etc., that call to you. One of the key things that it's important to realize is you don't choose an archetype. You choose activities. Archetypes choose you. The hermit chose me. The teacher chose me. The athlete chose me, and indeed the father (laughs) chose me too. There are many archetypes working through me and oftentimes all of us. I've met people that have as many as 20 of them that are so strong, they have a very, very hard time discerning how to manage all that archetypal energy. So as I've said, there's I've listed the first four, but there are others that I work through and that work through me all the time, such as the mystic. I have a deep love of mysticism, and it's fortunate for me that the mystic and the hermit are very um, harmonious archetypes. I also have a strong artist archetype alive in me, which also is fortunate because the hermit and the mystic all support each other with the artist, and much of my art has shown up 
in Czech Institute course material as the diagrams that is used to teach students. Now, I take my artistic renderings, which are often just hand drawings, and I hand them to a professional artist. So by the time you see them, they've been done by a graphic artist. Also, I have the entrepreneur and the businessman in me. So I've now shared the father, the hermit, the teacher, the athlete, the mystic, the artist, the entrepreneur, and the businessman. So you can imagine somebody with my level of success in the world has a lot of relationships that bring a lot of opportunity, and it's easy to get caught up in somebody, like I said earlier, offering me a deal to manufacture Swiss balls, but then I would have to spend a bunch of time being an entrepreneur, which would draw me into the world of business. And then the next thing you know, I start feeling like something's missing in me or like I'm moving in the wrong direction. And when people are moving in the wrong direction, it's often because they're making money. But on the inside, there's a voice saying, this isn't really fulfilling. So you can end up in the prostitute archetype, which means you're working for money, but you're not following the compass of your heart, which leads to a lot of problems, such as making poor decisions. A good example is when it was time for me to get out of the military or re-enlist. <laughs> Believe me, they tried to get me to stay in. They offered me a promotion, more money. They did not want to leave me to leave as trainer of the Army boxing team because my work had helped the team become extremely successful. When I left, we were the third-ranked amateur boxing team in the world, which is quite an accomplishment. So as we teach our students in Holistic Lifestyle Coach Training Level 2, it's impossible to make effective choices if you're not aware of what archetypes are working through you and, it, and you don't prioritize them in the order of importance. The order of importance depends on issues like what responsibilities you have to others, what your soul is calling you to do in your life at a given time, what you feel needs to be expressed so that you are creating joy in your life, growing and staying connected to your heart. For example, if I'm not conscious of my archetypal priority, the hermit, teacher, and athlete in me may make choices that decrease my effectiveness as of being a father, which will have a negative effect on my family, and therefore is not going to be an effective choice. And if you remember, the optimal choice is the one that's best for everybody on the, everybody on the dream team, and the suboptimal is the one that is good for you but not good for everybody else on your dream team and is very likely to cause problems. Now, another thing that can affect choices very significantly, usually for the worse, is, is called archetypal possession. So, for example, I've known many athletes that were husbands and wives, but were addicted to their athletic endeavor to the degree that it destroyed their family relationships. Jung is very descriptive of an archetypal possession. Remember, an archetype chooses you. But if a person gets an archetypal possession, they fall into such impassioned relationship with that mode of being and doing that it overpowers their rational faculty and even their emotive faculty, and they don't actually see the world as it is around them. They only see through the eyes of that given archetype. So, if you find yourself in a situation where you're so in love with your martial arts or your 
triathlon training or your business that you're negating responsibilities that are oriented towards other archetypes or even negating the other archetypes acting through you that are necessary to round you out. You know, being a father, a teacher, a hermit, an athlete, an artist, a mystic, a businessman, and an entrepreneur, and a gardener, uh, all are things that bring diversity to me and expose me to different people with different levels of knowledge and insight and wisdom and give me an opportunity to engage in other ways of being. So it's like getting exposed to a larger menu in life so that you can actually sniff around a little bit and find out what is fulfilling to you. But someone in an archetypal possession is lost in the archetype. The archetype literally has them in a state of unconscious addiction. And I've seen and worked with people, for example, uh, that are so archetypally possessed that they don't even realize what they're doing until they awaken to their own possession, which usually ends up happening when they overtrain and injure themselves because they're not listening to coaches or when they find their spouse asking for a divorce and realizing they're not going to get to see their kids very much anymore and things like that. So you cannot make effective choices in an archetypal possession. Usually, if you have an archetypal possession, you will be like a drug addict and will deny it when other people tell you that you're a workaholic or a sexaholic or whatever it might be. So it's very, very important to pay attention to the feedback you're getting. And when you start to see a consensus of opinion emerging, you'd be a fool not to pay attention. And if you don't pay attention, it means that your shadow is growing. It means you're losing free will, even though your ego may convince you that you have free will. Next, when we're looking at choices, we have to look at heart versus head versus unconscious choices and trauma. If we don't work on healing our trauma, it always influences our choices unconsciously and we usually think it's someone else's fault and can easily end up stuck in the victim or saboteur archetype. So if we've been abused, for example, sexually abused or physically abused or emotionally abused and we're traumatized by it, we don't consciously typically realize how much our trauma is skewing our decisions how much it's warping the mirror of the mind. Our self-reflective capacities are distorted. So it's very, very important. And this is why you need to ask the question, is it really true? And what would love do now? Because that brings your head and heart into relationship. Is it really true? Is the effective use of critical thinking? And what would love do now is orienting yourself to the compass of the heart. Addictions are also very, very challenging situations from which to make effective choices. And I define an addiction as any repeated behavior that does not produce the results that you wanted. Now, just to show you how common addictions are, and believe me, I have spent 37 years in my, of my career dealing with every kind of addiction you can imagine and my brother who committed suicide that I referred to earlier was addicted to drugs by the seventh grade 
because it was the only way he could deal with the pain that we were all going through in our family. I got, you know, my outlet was sports. So I just loved boxing and kickboxing and motocross racing and every sport that I could play. And the rougher and tougher it was, the better, because I needed something with a degree of intensity that could match the intensity of the pain and the anger that I had inside of me. Angelis Arian, who unfortunately has passed on, but was an incredible um, archaeologist and, and shaman, or excuse me, anthropologist, traveled the world to identify what were the root causes of addiction. And she went literally around the globe to, I don't know, over a hundred countries, spoke to tribal natives, spoke to people in the know. And after 10 years of research, was able to find the common denominators that lead to addiction. And I'm going to share those with you here because if you have any one or more of these, the more of these you have, the more likely you are to be suffering from an addiction at this very moment that can be dangerously negating your capacity for effective thinking, feeling, listening to your soul, and making choices and whenever you have an addiction, you, you have lost your free will. You no longer have control over what you're addicted to. It has you. It commandeers your mind. And remember, the mind is a far better tool than it is a master. So once something like an addiction takes your mind over, it becomes your master. The four most common causes of addiction worldwide are focusing on what's wrong. So if we're raised in families where our parents continually orient us to what we've done wrong, not what we've done well, it can program us to always look for the negative. So even when you have an amazing opportunity in front of you, you might look for and convince yourself of what's wrong with the opportunity and miss out and then could become very jealous if somebody that you know makes the optimal choice and ends up with the house that you wanted, or the car you wanted, or the spouse you wanted, etc. And then you just get yourself further and further into trouble and more stress, and that leads to more addictive behavior. The next common cause of addiction is the need to know. The need to know, unfortunately, comes from our very dysfunctional highly dysfunctional academic systems worldwide, which I could do an entire series of podcasts on just to highlight what I know about that. But when we're a child and we see children getting treated special or given favors or somehow being elevated above us because they get better grades and we don't realize that maybe they're a mathematical, logical child and that where most 98% of all education in academic institutions comes by way of the mathematical, logical uh, reasoning faculty or thinking faculty, yet only 8% of people are naturally inclined that way. We also have the visual, the auditory, and the kinesthetic learning faculties. So if you're in a school, which is pretty much all of them that is oriented toward the mathematical, logical, then the kids that have that as a natural talent are going to be able to get better grades with less effort because that's their natural skill, just like somebody with the natural skill of riding waves like Laird Hamilton will make it look real easy, but somebody whose natural skill is juggling, not surfing, will 
fall off the board repeatedly, even if they try for years, because it's just not their natural talent. So when we're raised in an environment where we get diminished because we don't know things, it triggers off a sort of a conclusion in our childlike mind that says, the more I know, the better I get treated. The more I know, the more love I get. And this is why we have so many people that practically live at least half of their lives in academic institutions, get PhDs, yet still don't have any functional experience at doing what they were trained for. In fact, research shows that 50% of people that graduate from universities are not even working within the field they were trained in within five years. So if we get stuck in a perpetual hunt for knowledge and we don't realize that that's distorting our abilities because we don't have the time to practice, integrate, synthesize, and refine the knowledge, we can actually convince ourselves that we're a lot smarter than we are and you end up with Bill Gates is what you get, that kind of personality, uh, which is very, very dangerous. So we need to be conscious of when our pursuit of knowledge is becoming an addiction and disabling our ability to make effective choices. And one of the ways it does it is you actually think you know something because you can recite the words. And many are the people that have been in classes with me and lectures with me that started challenging me and thought they were real smart asses because they had a university degree in something. And I'm polite the first time or two, but within a few minutes, I actually simply ask them questions that make it obvious to everybody listening that they actually don't know what they're talking about. Um, not to be rude, but to make a point. And the point is, intellectual knowledge is not practical knowledge. Intellectual knowledge does not ensure experience, and it does not ensure wisdom. Next is perfectionism. Perfectionism, unfortunately, is rooted largely in religious upbringings. The worst cases I've seen come from Catholicism, hands down, but I've seen this in Judaism, I've seen it in um, Islam, I've seen it in various other um, belief systems, and I've seen it in atheists. But whenever our parents raise us with the idea that we have to look and act a certain way, particularly if they leverage us by saying it will embarrass them if we don't look or behave a certain way, such as dressing the right way to go to church, wearing the right clothes, or going to a boarding school where you have to wear a uniform, etc., etc., then what happens is we can't really make the right choices because in a, in a state of perfectionism, there's a paradox, and that is that you're always dependent upon other people's approval because you can never really know if what you think is perfect is good enough until you get someone else's approval. So a woman, for example, who suffers from perfectionism can spend hours in the mirror trying to make herself beautiful, <laughs> and she gets into a taxi cab, and the driver looks at her and says, nice dress, but it doesn't really match your jacket or something, and she gets very offended yet he's just being honest and trying to support her, for example. So perfectionism is a very dangerous trap for which there's no win. And it's also illogical because anything that's perfect doesn't move. If something's perfect, it can't be improved upon. So 
essentially, if everything was perfect, nothing would be happening. We, we would all basically just sit there and stare at each other till we died because anything we would do would deface our perfectionism. Finally, and this is a very common one, is intensity. Angeles Arian found people that were raised in environments with a lot of intensity, such as parents putting a lot of pressure or screaming or yelling or being violent or being graded uh, in negative ways in schools leads to intensity, which jacks our cortisol levels up through the roof, winds us up, and leaves us constantly wondering what's going to happen next. So we're always constantly looking for danger or threats. And so the intensity is so high that we, people with this problem, are very susceptible to drug addictions because they tend towards Alcohol, which has a numbing effect, is one of the most common ones. But cigarettes, alcohol, food, sugar, um, pretty much any drug, heroin, because heroin's got a real capacity to knock your pain out, um, pain medications, you know, the list is very long. But if you're suffering from focusing on what's wrong, the need to know perfectionism and or intensity, and you don't have it managed, and you haven't looked into yourself carefully enough, which usually takes the guidance of a skilled therapist, this is what I do with people, one of the many things, and you haven't looked into your shadow, you can actually end up making very challenging choices, yet convincing yourself while you're making them that they're good choices, which can lead to a lot of fear and lack of ability to trust yourself, especially when it comes to things like who you have sex with, who you marry, and things like that, or where you invest your money, because you can really just get your ass kicked making uh, choices from a place of addiction and not realize what's causing it. And I share this with you because most approaches to addiction try to treat the symptom with behavior modification. But the reality is, until you get to the root of it, all you're doing is stuffing that energy back into the body. And so someone may stop drinking alcohol, but become a workaholic, or they might stop smoking pot, but become violent in relationships because they're just channeling the energy out of another valve that may be more acceptable than their previous addiction to those that are jailing them, so to speak. Next, the heart of choice. And that goes back to that question, what would love do now? If you use your heart to make choices, no matter what your condition is, it's always a step in the right direction. Jung teaches a concept called holding the tension of the opposites, which is also a concept from alchemy. And that is basically the effective use of do nothing. Holding the tension of the opposites means be careful about your urgency. It means sit with it. The alchemists call it cooking in it. If you're depressed, don't run down the street to get drugged. Sit with yourself. Look at your life. Look at what I call the story gap. Where is the story you're telling yourself on the outside out of tune with the story you're telling yourself on the inside? One of the most common story gaps there is is, oh, I have to do this job as a nurse or as a such and such to make enough money or I won't be able to take care of my family. But on the inside, the child of you or the soul of you is saying, 
you shouldn't be doing that job because you hate it and you're bored. What you should be doing is teaching people how to sail because that's what you love to do or painting or um, being a carpenter or working with stones or gardening or whatever it is. But the bigger the gap between the story that you're telling others and the story you're telling yourself, the more tension there is, the more stress there is, and the more likely there is for an addiction because the story gap produces a lot of internal intensity and it also leaves us feeling empty inside because the further we march down the road of not being true to ourselves, the more empty we feel and the less meaning there is in what we're doing. And without meaning, current doesn't flow. Spirit doesn't flow through us. Meaning is what facilitates the flow of spirit through us. It's very meaningful for me to do these podcasts because the amount of feedback I get on how many people's lives have been changed from the podcast is very significant. And so I can put a lot of time and energy into making the podcast, which I do because there's meaning in it for me. But if nobody was listening and I wasn't getting positive feedback, even if I was getting paid well, it would just leave me feeling like, why bother? I would hunt for something that gives me that sense of meaning because meaning is coupled with connection. Next, well, before I move on, so holding the tension, the opposite, sit with it, give it time. Be honest about how much time you have to make a given choice. For example, if someone's pressuring you to take a certain vaccine, and you haven't done your research, it's best to hold the tension of the opposites and do your research and don't make a decision until you've looked very thoroughly at the information on both sides by equally qualified experts, or you're very susceptible to making a suboptimal decision or a very bad decision. And in cases like medical circumstances that could lead to harm or death, and it does every day. Next is dousing. Dousing is using the subconscious, which is the wisdom of your body, and the unconscious, which is the total wisdom moving through you that you're unaware of at any given time, to get guidance. Because we're ultimately part of the whole, as I said a while back when I spoke about the higher self, any question we have can be answered by the rest of our mind. So we can reach into the minds of others. We can reach into the collective unconscious. We can reach into the universal conscious or unconscious. Dowsing is asking a question and then using some means of detecting the energetic response. So water well uh, dowsers use things like rods and pendulums and other devices. Pendulums are a commonly used dowsing tool, but if you can't trust your own inner guidance system because you're just not sensitive enough to feel it, using a pendulum is a very simple way to get answers to questions. And because the unconscious parts of you are far more vast in their capacity for knowledge and information, the ego is only about 5 to 7% of your total consciousness. Your unconscious is largely the rest, barring that which is superconscious, which for most people, even though the superconscious is there, they never use it. So dowsing 
can be done through muscle testing as well. In my online program, Primal Pattern Eating, I show you how to use muscle testing and soul connection, which is beyond the scope of this discussion. But if you want an effective tool to aid in decision making, just get a good basic book on dousing. There are many of them out there. Now, there are four functions of consciousness. Jung identified this. He has what he calls his consciousness compass. And the four functions of consciousness are sensation, which is the sensory systems of our body, thinking, which is obvious, feeling, which is oriented toward values but includes the information coming from our emotions, and then intuition. Typically, we have a dominance and a subdominance. So people that are dominant in thinking are subdominant in feeling. People that are sensation dominant are subdominant in intuition. And the other ones become accessory functions. To really reach our potential in consciousness, we want to work ourselves toward balancing our ability to pay attention to our senses, use our mind, listen for our instincts and our values and how our emotions respond to them, and also rely on our intuitive abilities because the less of those four functions we have in harmony the more blind we are and the less free will we have because you can't be free if you don't have the ability to make effective choices. So someone who can only think but can't feel is missing a huge amount of information. So just to review those four functions, sensation shows what something is. If you touch a rock, your senses tell you it's hard. If you touch water, they tell you it's wet. If you touch skin, they tell you it's soft. If you touch a dead body, they'll tell you it's cold. Thinking lets us recognize something's meaning. This bottle has a skull and crossbones. Thinking says that means do not let that touch your skin or get in your body. Feeling tells us something's value. So when people say, I get a gut feeling about this house, for better or worse, it could be a gut feeling I should or shouldn't buy it, it's connected to their sense of value and intuition points to the, to the possibilities that lie beyond the immediate facts. Intuition draws on wholeness and delivers in holes. The mind, as I said earlier, is a sword or a knife or a pair of scissors, but intuition brings things in holes. So in order to enhance your capacity to make effective choices, you need to be aware of how you relate to your senses and if you listen to them or not. If you have body shape problems, such as obesity or being underweight, malnourished, anorexic, bulimic, those are examples of people that have problems interfacing with their sensory systems. If you have chronic diseases, then you're not listening to your senses because they're there to give you information about what's happening in and around your body. If you're somebody that thinks too much, then you can actually stress the hell out of yourself or think so much you never actually get anything done. If you're oriented towards too much feeling, then you may have values but not sense what something is or be able to determine rationally whether it has meaning to you or whether you should or shouldn't do it. And if you lack intuition, then you 
actually are always dealing with pieces of truth, never the whole truth or the whole concept. So, you know, you know, it would be too much for me to share with you how I work with people to balance these functions out. And it's a process. It can take a year of working with someone who's highly committed to really mastering these things. I'm fortunate that my life circumstances brought me into high levels of athletic challenge and training, which requires a lot of sensory capacity, and that I had to face a lot of challenges in my life, which requires a lot of thinking and the use of intuition. And I developed a strong sense of values early in my life, particularly being raised on a farm, because if you don't have good values, then you can't farm effectively. You'll just ruin the farm and the animals and the plants. So the, the, the fortune for me is that, that I was able, through life experience, to have those things balance out. And because of the type of work I do and the archetypes that I work with, all of those functions are used in quite a balanced way. And there's tests you can do, like the Myers-Briggs, for example, will tell you what your ratios are and what your balance is. Next is the intellectual ego, which is actually often referred to by experts as an ideaplex. The reason is, is that the ego is actually not something of your own making. It's about 98 to 99% a collection of ideas that were imparted to you largely in the first 12 years of your life. And in the first seven years of your life, you don't really have any defense because you don't have enough knowledge to filter ideas. So when you consider that psychologists have shown through research that about 90% of the world population has not matured past the level of a 12-year-old, most people are still unaware of the fact that what they argue about, fight about, and hold to be vehemently true is really the product of a mind or an ideaplex programmed into them by other people. And this is why I say effective thinking requires that you have to look at both sides of an argument. You always have to ask yourself, is it really true? I tell my students all the time, any idea worth living is worth challenging. Challenge all your ideas and all your beliefs, especially if you're in a religion or a cult or the military or any kind of organization that is telling you what you must do and what you must think because that's how you lose free will. So we also have to remember that our level of maturity maturity in life has an effect on how conditioned we are and the kind of choices we make. I developed a system of what I call the four life archetypes that basically categorize archetypally the different stages of our life. First, we're born a child. Then we enter the warrior archetype, which means we have to figure out what we're willing to stand up for and fight for in our lives. What are our values? And so that's someone who's going through puberty. They're trying to sift through mom and dad's programmed egoplex and say, what part of mom and dad works for me and what part doesn't? If you're not enough of a warrior, then you will succumb to your parents' uh, demands and programming even when you're an adult. And you know you can tell who those people are because they hide their pot when their mom and dad come over, even if they're in their 40s or more, 
or 30s and they're living on their own for 10 years already, but they're worried about mom and dad jumping down their throat and, and being disappointed, which means you've been living a lie uh, and you don't really have an honest relationship with your parents, which is a very unhealthy place to make choices from because it signifies the state of a person's psychological development. So in the warrior stage, which really begins at puberty and can go indefinitely if a person's not careful, our task is to figure out what is meaningful enough in our lives to fight for and die for. And that's what our values are all about. The problem is, is that people at that age are very susceptible to mirages and illusions and end up in situations where they don't realize the child in them is still looking for a daddy figure or a mommy figure, and so end up in the military or in, in a, uh, a religion where God's always bossing you around, telling you what to do, and threatens to burn you in hell and all that kind of uh, childish stuff, which really anyone caught there has not asked the question, is it really true, nor have they looked at both sides of an argument, nor have they usually looked into what the other world religions have to say on the same issues, and I could go on for hours on that one, as most of you know. Once we grow through the child and the warrior, we have the opportunity to become centered in the king or queen archetype. The king or queen is signified by somebody who has achieved a high level of skill and success at what they do, usually is making a very good living, is well known for their work, and is capable of maintaining their own kingdom. So their kingdom begins with their own house, having their own belongings, not living off somebody else's paycheck, not living, uh, you know, barely making it from paycheck to paycheck. Somebody that's a king or a queen is quite successful and has a very strong sense of themselves, but they're still also typically very identified with material possession, caught in the world, and are susceptible to addictions, particularly around the middle of their life, because as we age, and our physical body begins to not have the vitality it once did, and our mind even gets to be tired, we find that it's we don't have the energy to keep inflating the persona that we created that was centered in the warrior archetype, and therefore we go into a, a crisis, often called a midlife crisis, and we realize that though we have this empire, we, we really aren't having fun maintaining it or trying to grow it, or dealing with all the people and the responsibility. If we reach an awareness of ourselves and enter into the realm of spiritual development, we can leave the king and queen archetype and enter to the wise man and wise woman archetype. The wise man and the wise woman is someone who has now found that material possessions and power over other people and fame and glory ultimately do not bring any guarantee of happiness whatsoever. In fact, they bring a lot of anxiety, depression, and suicide to the world, as most of you are probably aware from your own observations of king and queen type people out there, such as movie stars, mu famous musicians, um, you know, anybody that's got a high level of success, Steve Jobs, uh, those types of people. There's a king example, Oprah Winfrey. There's your classic queen archetype, Madonna. Um, you know, there's a lot of them out there. Um, 
Now, there's a lot because you have television, but you have to walk a long way and knock on a lot of doors to find someone who truly is in the king or queen archetype. As you go up this ladder from child to warrior to king to queen to wise man, wise woman, the percentage of the population diminishes significantly. So how this relates to making choices, if you're a child and you're making choices, then you usually need to refer to an adult figure and you're susceptible to not making an intelligent choice because you're letting someone else make the choice for you. Now, of course, this is assuming you're an adult acting out the child archetype. Children need adults to make choices for them for obvious reasons. If you're a warrior, then you uh, risk making choices out of constantly thinking you have to defend yourself or get one up on your imagined enemy. If you're a king or queen and you're making decisions that ultimately require more time and energy than you have, you can burn yourself out and then get depressed because you resent what you created and resent yourself for doing it and keeping doing it. And therefore, your midlife crisis hits like thunder. And I lived through my own midlife crisis uh, because I devoted myself to uh, saving the world, metaphorically, and when the world wasn't responding very well, I thought, what's the point? I've been telling people for my whole career to quit eating junk and exercise and have four doctors. And it's like you're just talking to a wall because people are so brainwashed. But the point is, is I just tried so hard, I burned myself out. And so I had to uh, have a, a time to really do some deep, heartfelt reflection and look deep inside of myself to see why I was doing what I was doing and where my real values were at. And then the wise man or the wise woman is the most wise and and the most mature and the most evolved, and they are capable of seeing the child, the warrior, the king, and the queen in them, because to truly uh, grow through these archetypes, these life archetypes, you have to transcend but include if you make it to the king or queen stage and you lose your child, you go into a midlife crisis. I never really got to have a child archetype because my father in particular had us working as children pretty much all the time with adult responsibilities. So uh, the only time I got to be a child was when I was on a sports field or racing a motorcycle. Um, and so I tried my best to do my best, hoping that if my parents could see that I was a winning athlete, that maybe there was uh, more likelihood they would let me do it. <laughs> it didn't work though. <laughs> so anyhow, the point being that um, you have to transcend and include. If the king loses or the queen loses their child, they will burn out and they will be very highly susceptible to depression and even suicide. If the warrior loses their child, then they stay in the battle all the time. They don't know when to play anymore. If a wise man or wise woman loses their king and queen, they don't know when to make effective decisions. And if they lose their warrior, they don't know how to stand up for themselves. And if they lose their child, they're not very wise because true wisdom requires a marriage of adult wisdom and child uh, spontaneity and openness. So these things, hopefully you can see, all have very profound effects on the choices that we make depending on the stage we're at, because you can't expect a child to make decisions for a warrior or a king or a queen. And you 
if you're if you esteem yourself as a wise man or a wise woman, but you're a workaholic, it means that you have transcended without including, and therefore you're making choices uh, with blinders on. So these are things that you know. I'm only giving you an overview of because it's a podcast, but to really go into the depths like I do with my students in, in Czech Institute training takes a fair bit more time. But I'd also like to say that these stages of the archetypes I've shared correlate to our development in in love. The child stage is the sex and violence love stage where we're learning to deal with gravity and things that can burn us and things that can cut us and, and hurt us and falling off of bicycles and not realizing that if you stick your hand in a dog's eye, it might bite you. So that's called the sex and violence stage because we're really learning how to be in the world. The warrior stage is the conditional stage. And that's where you say, I can maintain healthy, harmonious relationships with you as long as the following uh, needs are met and they will the opposite side will present you theirs and that's called conditional love i love you if and when or but then when we get to the king and queen stage we're usually still in the uh, conditional love because you have to maintain your territory the wise man or the wise woman is at the empathetic and compassionate loving stage because they can see everybody else in them and see all their pains, trials, and challenges because they've lived through them. So they have authentic wisdom. And that's why they're a wise man or a wise woman. So hopefully you can see that the ego is an ideaplex, but you have to mature out of the child archetype and become a warrior and decide what ideas that people programmed into you really serve you and are true or not true. And then you have the intelligence and the wisdom to actually become capable of achieving the king or queen position. And then with life experience, you can become a wise man or a wise woman. And paradoxically, our culture does not support elderly people very much. They're sort of treated like they're in the way. So we need to be very, very conscious that as we age, we become valuable to society because we have a lot of life experience and we know things like wars aren't usually a very good idea and cheating on your spouse and lying about it usually destroys a relationship. But when you're young and you're thinking with your dick or your vagina instead of your, your wisdom, it takes a wise man or a wise woman to sort of help you see what you can't see. So those are some very important concepts. Next, I'd like to talk about listening to your body to make better choices. Our instincts are very old and they are survival oriented. They largely come from the lower brainstem region called the reptilian brain. And our instincts deal with Things like hunger, thirst, the need for rest or sleep, the need to urinate, defecate, move our body, anything really to do with self-preservation. And creativity and love are also defined as human instincts by various experts such as Jung. So how that relates to making better choices is, <laughs> is related to how healthy you want to be first and foremost. You know, if you're hungry, then eat. 
if you're hungry but you've just recently eaten, it means that you're uh, not eating the right ratio of foods or you have a parasite infection or there's something that you need to pay attention to or get help with. If you're thirsty, drink something like water instead of sugar-coated crap. Um, when you're tired, rest. Don't drink coffee and use stimulants or you're going to burn yourself out. So, you know, it sounds rudimentary, but urination and defecation, you'd be shocked at the number of people that I work with that have real problems because they keep um, overriding the body's instinct to go to the toilet so that they can stay on a video game or do whatever. And the next thing you know, they're constipated or have bladder infections. Um, not listening to our body's need for movement is pretty obvious. We have a world full of obese people. Um, and not listening to your urge for creativity and love can get you in lots of trouble. So when you think of how many of the choices we make have something to do with the health of our body, and as I you know, may have said, but I'll say now, even if I'm going to say it again, your body is really the measure of the health of your brain. So I think I'm going to get into that in a bit. I won't elaborate too much, but you can't have a healthy brain if you don't have a healthy body. So you might want to consider that because you can't make healthy choices without a healthy brain, uh, not very effectively. Okay. So when it comes to our bodies, the things that we need to pay attention to are our instincts because they are there and de uh, designed through potentially billions of years of evolution. If you think of the first cell, uh, single-celled organisms that evolved progressively to become bodies like we see in animals and nature and human beings, we're dealing with a very, very long, complex process that is designed to keep us alive. And today, most people are so in love with their ideas and their ego that they forget that their body is the basis of their existence in a three-dimensional reality. Next is emotion and its influences on choice for better or worse. Emotions are more powerful than thoughts or ideas. There's a great book by, called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, which is an excellent book on how to change your behavior, which I encourage all my students to read in the, at the Institute. But they make it very clear that whenever we have emotions that are not being addressed effectively, they will overpower our intellect. And we typically make choices using our intellectual abilities, especially at this time in human evolution where we're heavy, heavy into the mental stage of structure, stage of consciousness. So emotional conditions always call up instinctive reactions an unbridled, unbridled emotional reaction often leads to regression. In other words, if you're needing to make a choice about how to handle a marriage or uh, an issue with a child and your emotions are out of control, which usually means that your organs are not healthy. For example, in Chinese medicine, they teach you that if your liver is backed up, you're more prone to anger and lo and behold, I've seen it over and over again. In fact, all the emotional listings in Chinese medicine for the organs are so accurate, it's more than impressive. And I quoted the book, How Emotions Are Made, earlier, and um, that book gives you right up-to-date science showing, in fact, the Chinese were more accurate than they probably 
realized based on a scientific assessment of their system. So the key thing is your emotions are biochemically mediated. You change a person's hormones, you change their emotional responses. And the status of your hormones has to do with nutrition, hydration, sleep, breathing, thinking, and movement. So if you're not listening to your instincts and you're not keeping your body healthy, then you're not going to have stable emotions, which means that your intellect is going to be overtaken by emotional instability, and that will reduce your ability to make effective choices and optimal choices, meaning you know optimal and effective, meaning the same thing. But if you want to make optimal choices every time, then you need to come into it with a healthy body instrument because your body is what uh, you live through. It's your interface with the world. Then we want to look at quantitative versus qualitative assessment and choice. I talked a little bit about it earlier, but we again need to be reminded we want to look at cost versus value. Sometimes something less expensive that's less stressful actually has a higher value for our lives than something more expensive and prettier that may be a status symbol for you, but ultimately that type of purchase could put you into a dangerous situation. Next, I'd like to talk about the unconscious and its relationship to choice. And I'll distinguish again the subconscious is the wisdom of your body, your cells, your DNA. The unconscious is all the information available to your, not only your senses, but your extrasensory perception, such as clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, intuitive knowing, intuition. Um, So the unconscious is really a vast storehouse of information. And To use it effectively, one of the things we have to do is learn to still our mind and listen to the information because the unconscious speaks to us through our body, through our feelings, and depending on your natural abilities through things like an intuitive knowing or inner visions and things like that. So the unconscious is composed of all the information flowing into your body mind that you're unconscious of. Remember, the ego is only 5 to 7% of your total consciousness. The rest of it's largely unconscious. And that includes all sources at any given moment, including thoughts, feelings, emotions, prior programming, genetic influences, which includes ancestral influences. Um, if you look at the book, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wu Lin, uh, there's a lot of information on how our ancestors our ancestral lineage affects us through our DNA and leads to things like problems with addiction or cancer or various other things. Then we have environmental influences such as noise, smells, chemicals, um, too much uh, crowding, and things like that. Those are all affecting us at an unconscious level. The personal unconscious is also uh, directly influenced by the collective. In other words, we have a personal unconscious, which is all the information coming to and from us as an individual, but then we have the collective unconscious, which is all the information coming from the world in totality. And then we have, uh, within the collective unconscious, we not only have all of humanity, but all the living beings on the planet at any given time, and the memory of all that have ever lived on the planet, because that information is held in the unconscious, which is 
a non-local reality. It is not based on causality. If you don't understand a non-local reality, it basically means that you can have action without a cause, is, is a short way to put it, but it's very well proven in quantum physics. And if you want to learn more about it and the scientific evidence of it, look into Bell's theorem. He, Bell, John Bell was the first one to scientifically prove that the non-local reality was there. Uh, for example, they showed that if you take two photons and correlate them, let them interact together, it doesn't matter how far you separate them. You could put them on either side of the universe. If you do anything to one of them, it instantaneously affects the other one at the other side of the universe, which cannot be a causal event Event because light uh, would take a very long time to cross the universe. So when you have a an a-causal or non-local event, you're dealing with a different animal than a causal event, and the collective unconscious is a non-local reality. Mind itself is a non-local reality. Now, the conscious mind chooses from about 30 billion bits of information to second. Different textbooks say different things. Nassim Harriman stated in a lecture that I saw that there are about 30 billion billion biochemical reactions in our body. All of those are being managed by the subconscious and the unconscious but your brain narrows its selection down to 10 to 100 bits per second. Now, a bit, just to give you an example, uh, a typewritten page is about 500 bits of information. So you're taking 30 billion bits, we'll call it the Encyclopedia Britannica every second, and whittling it down to about one paragraph worth of information. And that 10 to 100 bits of information per second has been shown by research to be largely influenced by what your body and mind feels is essential to your survival, which goes back to my comments. If you have unresolved trauma or things like PTSD, then no matter how beautiful a day it is or how much love and and support and joy there is in the environment, your nervous system is going to bias itself towards looking for threats And this is why people get so anxious and and eventually burn out and get depressed. So therefore, the the more out of balance you are with meeting your basic four doctor needs, the more your choices will be skewed by unconsciously and consciously perceived survival threats, which is one of the reasons I put so much emphasis in my training at all levels on living a balanced four-doctor lifestyle, or your body and your mind are constantly feeling stressed, and that triggers elevated cortisol levels, which shifts you to a left-brain dominance, and research shows that you constantly survey the environment for threats, and you don't see the opportunities. So if you want to make effective choices or optimal choices consistently, you need to make sure that you take care of yourself, because as I said earlier, you are the interface with this world. Your body is the interface that your soul and spirit use to experience life. It's important to realize that your brain can be no healthier than your body, as I was saying before, and your brain is the interface between the field of mind that surrounds you at all times and your body, and these are both real influences on the choices you make. 
your brain, your body, and your mind. To better understand this, simply think of your brain as a two-way radio. It sends and receives information, but the radio signals are in waves permeating space in every direction at once. The global mind, or the collective unconscious, is like a giant broadcast station that sends messages non-locally, and your mind is like a vortex of energy and information within the ocean, not only of the mind of the world, but the entire universe. It's your brain that's interfacing between your body and your mind, and you can, um, and your mind can pick up messages from minds other than your own, and that's what telepathy is all about. Some of you may have had the experience of just sitting there working at your desk or something, and all had all of a sudden out of the blue had a thought like, "I think I want to kill myself," but it's very, very out of characteristic for you. It may be that in your relaxed state or even in a flow state, you're actually picking up on other people's thoughts. Spiritual masters are very famous for being able to do this. In fact, if you study Kabir, that was one of the ways he demonstrated to his master that he was a worthy student. Um, and uh, he, his master quickly learned that uh, whoever this young man was was soon to be the master because he could read the master's mind. Some of you may have noticed that when you are really in love with someone, you tend to know what they're thinking about before they even say it. Or when they're emotionally stressed and you can't see them because they're away from home, you'll know that they're in stress. Or when they're away from home, say at work, you can sense that they're coming near. Uh, you know, I have done this many times with my friends uh, coming to see me, and a lot of them could tell you about it. Someone's coming over. You know, they're driving. I don't know when they're going to get here. Maybe they're coming from San Diego. God knows what the traffic might be. But I literally can feel them approaching. So I'll blow a bag of smoke and I'll be standing at the door with a hot bag of smoke right when they walk up. And they often say, how'd you know I was going to get here just now? I said, I just know. And it's not that I have any special abilities. It's just that I take care of myself and I use my four functions of consciousness. And if I didn't, this institute <laughs> that I run wouldn't be in existence. There would be no depth to it. So those are some things to think about. Some other important factors to consider when making choices are, what is your track record with the choices of the type that you're facing? In other words, if you have a bad track record of choosing people to marry, you might want to look into some of these things we're talking about here or get some counseling. Because uh, without going into a long discussion, we keep attracting to ourselves what we need to heal until we heal it. And, and that can go on lifetime after lifetime. What is your biggest fear? When you address your biggest fear, you actually remove the biggest thing that commandeers your mind and emotions into a polarized relationship that stops you from having the dynamism necessary to be able to look at both sides of a situation, continue or consider other people's wants, feelings, and needs other than your own. So when we're in a a fear state and we haven't addressed it, it brings us down Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the very bottom and we get stuck and we can't see the world as it is. Getting outside support from wise people is also a very good idea, especially if you're using the do nothing to gather more information. If you've listened to my uh, recent podcast with Tom Campanero, one of the founders of Total Gym, then you got to meet one of the people that I've used as 
a form of wise counsel in my life since 1988, because he's a very, very experienced and very successful and very loving, wise man. And that's the kind of people we should all be looking for in our lives. And the name for a person like that is an angel. And just take a tip from Paul, don't abuse an angel. Angels are wise enough to value themselves in their own time. So if you start abusing angels, they will quickly leave you to yourself until you learn to be respectful and can see the benefits of having them in your lives um, because they're not going to support uh, irritating childish behavior from anybody. Next is, what does your dream team have to say about a given choice? Most people's tendency is to just answer questions in isolation that affect other people's lives, like spouses or co-workers or um, team members, things like that. So you always need to consider who's on my dream team. Next is what I call the I-we-all of choice. First, we always have to consider our needs honestly and ask, how will this choice affect me? Then how will it affect any other that I'm engaged with that could be affected by the choice? And then how will it affect potentially all the people that I'm involved with or even the whole world when you get to uh, people like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, presidents, senators, and people like that. They're at the all level of choice. So if you apply everything I've just said to those people, you might find that <laughs> we, we might be in trouble because a lot of these people making choices that affect all of us are seriously out of balance, which concerns me deeply, <laughs> which is why I do this work. Then there's a technique I, called, I call using your crystal ball. And the way you, you know, seers and gypsies uh, use crystal balls to see the future. So the metaphor of using the crystal ball is simply look into your imaginal crystal ball and say, if I make this choice right now to buy this or to have sex with this person or do this drug, what does my life look like a week from now? What does it look like a month from now? What does it look like a year from now? What does it look like three years from now? And go out as far as you need to go. And again, you have to be honest with yourself or nobody can help you. So the crystal ball technique is a very, very good way of saying, you know, putting yourself in this honest state of feeling, what are my emotions going to be like if I continue to have this affair in a month, in a year? What's the impact going to be on my children when my husband finds out or my wife finds out? That's the crystal ball. Then we want to be aware of synchronicities. So a synchronicity is an a-causal event. It means something happens that you cannot identify any causal connection between you and the event, but there's a clear correspondence. So uh, an example of a synchronicity in, in my life, when we were shopping for houses for five years and the girls found our current rainbow house that we're in, when they pulled up to the gate, the first thing Angie noticed is, oh my God, that the there's a great big beautiful piece of artwork that is the um, depiction of the uh, Navajo sun face. I had painted that three months earlier 
on my 2021 mandala. Actually, uh, no, so that was my 2020 mandala. And instantly, Angie went, oh my God, that's, that's what Paul painted on his mandala. And of course, we were actively looking for a house. And there were, were other signs as well. So there's no causal way that you can connect my desire for this house, which was built in 1995 by professional hot rod builders who I've never met in my life, with the idea they had of putting that on the gate and my spiritual practice, which includes a chikuna, I think it's called a chikina or a chikuna doll, which is a doll of sun face that I use as a symbol to connect to the sun, which I'd been using since about 2005 on a daily basis. <clears throat> and yet here in my new house, Sunface is right on the front gate. That is a synchronicity. And lo and behold, the house was out of our price range. But there was so many synchronistic events that we said, well, let's just stick with it and see where we go. And ultimately, we were able to get the house negotiated to be within our price range, which was really a miracle. Because if you saw the place, you would know what I mean. So look for synchronicities. Another type of thing is you're trying to solve a problem and you can't, you've been working at it and you just can't seem to find the answer to a big question, for example, and you go to a friend's house for dinner or someone you don't even know and you walk into their living room and you just happen to be drawn to their bookshelf and you look on at the bookshelf and there's the title of a book that's dealing with exactly the subject matter and you open the book and in seconds find a description of exactly what you've been trying to find. So there's a synchronistic communication. Also be aware that the self, which is the parts of the world that support you and all of us, such as water, the earth, sunlight, trees, plants, and animals. So if you think of Earth as Gaia, as a living being, then the Earth will often communicate to you to support you in your path because really you are a child of the Earth. Angie Chek, my wife, who is a, a highly trained shaman, actually teaches workshops on how to read nature, which are very, very interesting and enlightening. Um, so look around. Um, a good example of that is when Angie um, didn't know she was pregnant with Zoe, she was driving up to see me one day and she had her car windows open and a woodpecker flew right into her car and just sat on the seat with her. And it turns out, first of all, it was still in her car when she got to me and she wanted me to come look at it. And I'd never seen a woodpecker like this in my life. And we looked it up on the internet. And it turns out it's not even from this region of the world. They're not even normally seen around here. And then something else happened with another animal. Well, she was just sort of blown away by these. She had three of these types of animal experiences in a row within the span of days. And she just happened to be having a conversation with one of her friends that went to shaman school with her, who's an intuitive and a psychic. And she told the woman about this. She goes, oh, I've had some weird things happen today. And she told the woman and the woman immediately said, are you pregnant? And then she explained why those three signs suggested she might be pregnant. So she did a pregnancy test and found out she was pregnant with our daughter Zoe. So look for 
communication from nature. And that's another type of synchronicity. Next, we need to look at our past. Our memory and our unconscious often is loaded with unresolved pain, baggage from challenging relationships, fear, and um, we often are unaware that our potential for freedom is tied up in all of those things. So it's very important to do shadow work and to forgive people and move on. You know, holding anger and resent towards people that you can't take responsibility for fixing or even getting them to apologize is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. It just doesn't work. We also need to be aware of what's happening in the present, which means we need to be aware, or you may not see the signs of the nature of nature or the universe communicating to you, and we need to be aware of what our future dream goals and objectives are, or we don't really know if a choice is moving us in the direction that we want to go. Uh, for example, there, what I was, we were all shopping for houses for five years, there was many that we could have bought and probably made them work. And it would have taken the stress of finding a house and all that out. But something inside of me in particular, but sometimes either one or both of the girls just did not feel complete. It didn't hold the energy that our dream goals and objectives required, such as having space to run workshops, space for a gym, space for an office for Penny and I, and a treatment room, and a guest suite, and all these things that we needed. So if we weren't clear on what our future was with regard to our dreams, goals, and objectives, we could not make an effective choice in the present. It's very important to clear yourself. If you don't clear yourself, um, you can't make choices without negative influences. And foods, drinks, and drugs are all affecting the way we make choices. And we're not only bringing the food in, we're bringing the spirits of the food. There's a reason alcohol is also called spirits. The spirit is the consciousness of that being. And each thing we eat, such as an animal or a plant, has a unique type of consciousness. This is one of the reasons shamans want people typically to fast before they do shamanic journeys because they're trying to eliminate any other influences that can affect the ceremony or can get in, in the way of the medicine that the shaman is using. So we, you know, a good example is I've had countless people reach out to me with terrible problems with anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. And when I look at what they're eating and drinking, it's mostly just junk so I tell them, if you really want to get rid of that problem, then switch to organic food, clean water, ground yourself. Basically, I give them a basic four doctor prescription. And so far, every single one of them that's ever done what I told them to do got a hold of me and said, oh my God, it's gone. It's like a miracle. And many of them had already been and gotten drugs from psychiatrists and all sorts of stuff that didn't do anything but make it worse because it just makes your body more toxic and more out of balance. Remember, the bigger and more important the choice, the clearer and more still within one needs to become, or your inner listening capacity is disabled accordingly. If you don't have time to prepare to make an effective choice, you will have time to, <laughs> to deal with the repercussions of making an ineffective choice every time. 
It could end you. It could end a relationship. It could cause you to lose a job. It can get you put in jail. It could cause you to go broke. So, <laughs> people come to me from all over the world, uh, not just to hang out with me. I'm a very expensive guy to hang out with as a client. They come to me because their lives are usually in some kind of a crisis, and they need real help, and they're not getting the kind of help they need other places. So. One of the things I notice almost always is they're not able to still themselves inside and listen to their soul and listen to their body. They're totally trapped in their head and in their fear and in their unresolved baggage or pain or judgments over themselves and others. So the point is, make sure you spend time being alone with yourself, having a relationship with yourself, or you will not be able to use the gifts of the human anatomy, physiology, and psyche as an interface with your mind, your personal unconscious, the collective unconscious, and the cosmic mind or the cosmic unconscious, and therefore also the superconscious of the universe. Now, from a spiritual perspective, there is no right or wrong, only experience. That doesn't mean to make choices foolishly because there's no right or wrong. It means that you shouldn't beat yourself up. If you did the best you could do and it turned south, it may mean that your soul wanted you to have that experience so that you could gain the wisdom necessary to help others that might get stuck in the same experience moving forward in your life. We all have soul contracts with other people to fulfill, and sometimes we have to go to soul school, and that can mean Uh, the school of hard knocks sometimes, as I kind of alluded to you that I've been through uh, too many times, (laughs) but I've learned a lot. And also have faith that you're being guided. You know, people that don't have a spiritual connection to life often lack faith. When you really do the kinds of things I teach and practice, you come to realize that the the whole planet is a living being with incredible wisdom. The sun is a living being that is wise enough to guide all of our planets through a crowded galaxy without banging into things. You know, when you look at the genius of the universe and the magnificence and the beauty of it, then you'd have to say, well, why would this universe or God create a life such as mine if it didn't have meaning and purpose and value on a grand scale. So spirituality is really helps us more than religion have faith because so many religions are polarized with so much fear of God and pain and you better or else that people kind of stick to the religion only because they're afraid of what'll happen if they leave, which they don't realize is programmed right into it as a business strategy. But when you really pay attention to the things I'm teaching here and have faith, you can trust even if you make a mistake and don't make the optimal choice, that that behind every cloud of gray is a silver lining, and then you just got to look for it. Most of us tend to avoid chaos, but in my podcast I did with Irvin Laszlo, who's just like one of the most amazing human beings on the planet twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, author of hundreds of scientific papers and written something like 25 books. Um, He says whenever a system's in chaos, that's the perfect opportunity for change because it's unstable. So when our life is actually turned upside down, that's the time when we are being offered an opportunity for change. You may have wanted to rebuild your house for 20 years, 
but just kept talking yourself out of it, then a forest fire burns it down and now you have the opportunity to build your new house however you want it. Um, chaos brings things to the surface that are usually hidden by order. Arnold Mandel tells us in his amazing works that chaos is full of information if we're willing to be present with it and look at it. Uh, you might want to look at uh, Arnold Mandel's book or listen to it, The Shaman's Body, which is very good. All of the books by Arnold Mandel are excellent. There's probably four or five of them at least that I've studied. Osho says there's no such thing as a sin except doing something twice when you were sure it didn't work the first time, like cheating on your spouse or stealing from people or using drugs that cause you to get yourself in trouble. So consider that. Remember the old saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That's something to ponder. You can't control the choices others make, but you can control how you respond to them. That is your domain and your responsibility. And remember, you're 50% of every one of your relationships, so you have the ability to manage your 50%, even if that means calling a timeout, separating yourself from somebody until you can get clear on what your wants, feelings, and needs are and deliver a specific request and offer them to do the same and then determine from there whether there's a possibility for harmony and reconnection or whether it's time to close that chapter uh, and move forward. So that brings us to the end of what I really wanted to share with you in our Thrive Part 2, How to Make Optimal Choices Every Time. I hope you feel inspired to do the spiritual work and create more uh, freedom for yourselves and gain more free will each day. I hope you uh, found that some of these things I talked about <laughs> somehow touched you and said, oh yes, that's me, or yes, I've had that experience, or oh, I learned that lesson because that's all positive reinforcement. If you enjoy this kind of personal development training and spiritual development and would like to devote the time to or have a career helping others live and love more fully. I designed the Czech Institute Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Program just for you. HLC1 is our public offering because it carries the things that everybody needs to know to learn to listen to their instincts and meet their basic needs to have a healthy body and a healthy brain so they can use their mind optimally and have access to their four functions of consciousness. And Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 2 is our professional training entry level and proceeds from there to the advanced training in Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 3. It's a complete program that offers you tools and skills that you need to get started on a new career, if that's what you'd like to do. <laughs> in the world today, being in a Holistic Lifestyle Coach business is really good because there is a lot of sick people that really need a lot of help and are willing to pay for it. Or if you want to greatly enhance your skills as a medical professional or allied healthcare professional, such as a trainer, strength coach, acupuncturist, massage therapist, dance and movement educator, etc., then HLC2 is a powerful toolbox and many doctors and therapists from all over the world of all types have been through that training and have applied it very beautifully. If you know others that can use some good education on how to make effective choices, then please share this podcast with them. I'd really love the support. And thank you to our sponsors. They share my mission, vision, and values, and they 
produce extremely high quality products that are earth friendly and their companies are sustainable and they're all beautiful people. You've heard many of their voices on the ads that we create together and may have noticed I try to create ads that don't just ask you to buy something, but leave you with a little gift of information and education because I like to share the love that way. And thank you for each of you for being part of my tribe, the Living 4D Podcast Tribe, which is an extension of the Czech Institute, and helping me in making the world a little bit better place each day. I have lots more to share with you, so look forward to next week's podcast. And I will conclude with my favorite prayer that I use as I enter into a shamanic ceremony. We are safe. We are home. We are whole. Focus on being on the other side of it. See your vision. See yourself as complete, as whole, as a fully free and fully functional human being. Aho, great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check. Remember to check out the Czech Institute's Thrive event by going to checkinstitute.com forward slash thrive. You'll find the full schedule of events and how you can get a head start on registration for the Czech Advanced Training Program of your choice at the special Thrive rates. That's C-H-E-K-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E dot com forward slash thrive. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check or on Twitter at paulcheck or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4D with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Czech videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Music